Episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I spoke to Tom Frankham, and it is a classic. Tom became lecturer in secondary mathematics at the University of Birmingham after teaching in Birmingham schools for a number of years, most notably as head of mathematics at King's Norton Girls School. Tom developed an innovative approach with his department teaching mathematics to mixed attainment groups and this was recognised nationally when Tom and his team won the TES Award for Maths Team of the Year in 2015. Tom is interested in all aspects of educational research but in particular equitable approaches to teaching mathematics and the development of expertise. Tom is currently conducting PhD research into the nature of practising in mathematics. Now, I've been wanting to get Tom on the show for ages. If I was to pick one word to describe Tom, it would be deep. He's one of those people who never takes things on face value. He's able to cut through the noise and ask pertinent, challenging questions. As you'll hear in this interview, this can be quite difficult, especially when the person on the receiving end of these pertinent and challenging questions is me. So, in a wide-ranging conversation, we discuss the following things and plenty more besides. First, given the length of Tom's answers, I might be in breach of the Trades Descriptions Act in calling my first set of questions speed dating. But the tangents Tom goes off on are absolutely brilliant. Tom then takes us to his fascinating career with ups and downs that many will relate to. Then we get to Tom's favourite failure. And as a warning for the emotionally inclined amongst us, there's a story in there that genuinely brought a tear to my eye. And then we focus in on Tom's work with novice teachers. What difficulties do they face? How does Tom help them overcome these difficulties? And crucially, what advice does Tom have for teachers who work with novice teachers, either as mentors or when they support them in observations? The insight Tom shares into lesson observations and subsequent feedback I found particularly illuminating. Tom picks out a brilliant big three... And then, as an incentive to stick around right till the end of the conversation, Tom says possibly the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard about how he plans his lessons. It comes right out of left field. Just wait for it. Now, at the risk of taking a peek behind the curtains of the inner working of the podcast, I also send my guests a set of bullet points containing the key areas I want to talk about and some key questions that I'm going to ask. Now, I did the same with Tom, sending him around 20 questions in total. And after nearly three hours, we got through four of them. But rarely have I learned so much from a conversation or enjoyed myself more. Fortunately, I've locked Tom into a golden handcuffs deal to return to the show later in 2020 to talk about the other areas on my list, teaching mixed attainment, leading a maths department, and crucially, Tom's area of PhD expertise, making the practice in mathematics as effective and equitable as possible. So stay tuned for that. One big old plug before we start, you may well have seen on Twitter, my new book, Reflect, Expect, Check, Explain, is due for release at the end of February 2020. It is potentially a controversial look at how to use carefully varied sequences of questions and examples in the classroom to enable our students to think mathematically. It also features an epic 40,000 word chapter, and just for context, that's the length of many books, on how the core ideas from my first book, How I Wish I Taught Maths, have developed 
developed in the two years since the book's release. Reflect, Expect, Check, Explain is available to pre-order from Amazon now to guarantee delivery on re release day, and there's a link to that in the show notes. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Tom Frankham. Um, as a warning, the, the sound from Tom is a little bit ropey at the start of this interview, but it sorts itself out pretty quickly. I really hope you enjoy this one. I have absolutely no doubt that you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Tom, so we start the podcast as we always do with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Well, I've thought about this a little bit because I listened to the podcast. Um, and one of the things that I missed was the podcast puzzle. Yes, yes, they so were the days. I'm gonna say, my um, favourite number is the delectable number. <laughs> right. Have you heard of the delectable number? I have not. Tell me more. So it's got nine digits. It contains the digits one to nine, and the first n digits are all divisible by n. So, like the first three digits are divisible by three, the first four are divisible by four. Wow! And this is a unique number. It's nine... a unique number. Well, in base ten, it's unique. Um, yeah, so that's a nice little puzzle for you to work away on. Wow, if I go quiet for the rest of the interview, Tom, you know what I'm thinking about. Yeah, that that's is... what <laughs> that Delectable number, I love it. So, uh, yeah, uh, a podcast puzzle and a speed dating answer. Strong start. Yeah, I mean, I've got loads of things that I could say to that. Actually, it, I had that kind of, like, paradox of choice where there were so many things yes. that I, whatever I pick, I'm going to be disappointed kind of thing. I like it. Um, I was talking with 24 because I think, like, that's a nice number for do you know the 24 game um i don't think so no go and tell me okay you choose any uh any four digits and it's a bit like countdown you have to use those four digits but you always have to make 24 um and it's great it's just this kind of because it's like an inverse problem where you're having to work backwards to to this. There's so much math. And if you want to develop kind of like fluency with calculations, they're really, really good. Um, there are some combinations of numbers that are really difficult. Uh, like there's only one way of making 24. So, for example, 3388 is like an absolute favorite of mine. It took me a couple of hours the first time. I mean, some people will probably get that really quick, but. Oh, yeah, uh, you, ha you have to use them all, I'm assuming. You have to use all of them. You can't right. just do three times eight there. You have to use all four. Wow. Um, but then there are other combinations which are much easier. So if you have uh, one, two, seven, three, there were like lots of ways. Um, four six six eight is one i know i don't know where i came across that from but that combination has like over 60 ways of making wow. 24 so it's kind of like a quite fun thing um, but i used to love this as the start of a lesson or if you've got a spare few minutes and you want to just or, or the computer's not loaded or the yes. late from assembly or something that you could just whack two or three of these up and say pick them um, and some of them are just deceptively difficult and you can leave it as a challenge for them to go away and work on um, but then some are more straightforward and actually you can buy um, you can buy a game version of it where they're all kind of structured so you get like one star ones which have lots of combinations but then three star ones I think it's that way around have like hardly any combinations so they're really tricky uh, you can get versions with fractions um, things with negatives so we've got a couple of those in there 
um, yeah, they're really nice to play around with. Wow, and I'm assuming because like like the classic four fours one, do you kind of impose rules here? You can't do anything dodgy. Like, can you chuck a factorial in there and? Uh, nope. No fact, and no kind of sticking digits together like one no, or two. No, like concatenating. Nope, none of that. Got it. Got it. Wow. Flipping out. <laughs> two for one there. That is two for the price of one. That's very. And I'm assuming it works well with twenty-four, just because it's kind of abundant with factors. Is that why twenty-four is a nice one for it? Or yeah, I think so. I think. I guess so. I mean, I've only really looked at sort of 24, but whether there's a better version if you play 48 or 96, I mean, that seems like something <laughs> be nice to explore. You could have for the whole week on it. Wow. Nice. I like it. Fantastic. Okay. Well, I, my fear here is you've peaked too soon, Tom, with the, with these answers, but we'll, well, we'll, <laughs> we'll see what happens. Uh, questions... well, maybe I, if, I, if I just give something good at the start, then <laughs> everyone's get, get their sort of takeaway at the start, and then yeah, the, the rest of the waffle might yeah. be fine. <laughs> All right, then. Question two. What, what was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Um, it's tricky. I liked most of maths at school, but I've actually got a really bad memory for that sort of thing, so I can't remember necessarily being particularly inspired by individual topics. I just liked everything, and I liked it, I suppose, because I was good at it compared to other people, which I kind of don't like about myself now, <laughs> but at the time, that's what I liked. Um, I could tell you one thing that I really didn't like at school, yeah, which was simultaneous equations. Okay, how come? I just didn't get it, didn't get what they were, what you were trying to do, what you're trying to work out. I think that was down to how it was taught. And if I just saw one on a test or an exam, or even on the finals, the GCSEs or whatever, I just left it. Yeah, okay, that's not for me. So right up to kind of year 11, you weren't? Yeah, right? yeah. Wow. Are, are you a fan now? Or are you... Love it, similar test. And what was it? Was it just that you didn't see the purpose? Was that the issue? I think I just didn't get what they were or what you were trying to do. Right. And we had this kind of recipe to follow. Um, and I think maybe in the moment on the day that we got taught it, I could follow it. But then I just, I couldn't really work out what you were supposed to do. Um, I suppose it's a kind of link to, like I was one of those people at school who was good at following the recipe. I had a very good memory at that point. I could just remember it and, um, and that served me quite well most of the time. But it wasn't until, like, basically partway through my maths degree that I realised that you didn't have to remember everything by rote. You could figure some things out. Yes. So. It's interesting that simultaneous equations would be the one. Because, again, like, I often have kids who who don't like this, let's say, the quadratic formula because they don't fully understand that. They're just chucking numbers yeah. in and an answer comes out. Whereas simultaneous equations, you kind of hope there'd be a bit of meaning behind how that was taught. But yeah, perhaps not in your case. That's uh, hmm, interesting one. Interesting one. Um, all right, third, third question then, Tom. Um, what would you like to do if you weren't involved in education? Um, well, I like working in education, but I think I might quite like to be an architect. I don't know if anyone said that before. No, I think we've had a couple, yeah. And again, is this just you? You need to be working with numbers. Is this is this the key to this? Well, I was quite into architecture and design, and I toyed with doing that at university. Um, so when I was applying, but 
all the courses last um, like seven years <laughs> yes. and my parents were paying so and I knew they weren't going to be going on holiday for the next <laughs> year, so, I, so it, that's that's why I went for maths um, and I suppose I think um, like Daniel Willingham said that the way that architects work might be quite similar to how teachers might work okay. you know, in terms of um, you might have kind of loads of different things that you're trying to balance as an architect if you design a building, so sort of being sustainable and cost effective and beautiful and things like that. Um, and you get a bit of science, a bit of maths that will influence that design. There are sort of basic principles and theories, but it won't determine what the building ends up looking like you have to use your own kind of creative flair with those principles and theories and i think the same sort of true with teaching that you have theories about motivation behavior maths teaching pedagogy which give you kind of boundaries um, but then you have to work out what to do within those boundaries Wow, God, no, I've never never thought to that that link before. He's he's good, Willingham, isn't he? He's uh, yeah. he's, he's pretty on the ball with stuff. Well, that's fascinating, fascinating. All right, Tom, um, tell me about your career then today, because you you've done a lot of things um, in terms of uh, education generally and, and maths in particular. So yeah, pick it up from wherever you want to, and, and and tell us how you got to where you are today. Okay, well, I started teaching in two thousand and two. Um, I'd done a maths degree at Birmingham. So I said, like, I sort of went from being good at maths at school to being not very good uh, at university. I didn't think the way that I was being taught at university really helped me to learn anything. Um, and that's kind of got me interested in teaching in a way because I didn't feel I was being taught. So and what, I was interested you just, in what did, teaching was. Describe that way of being taught at university, Tom, that, that, that you didn't like. Um, well, so I sat at the back of a massive lecture hall with about 300 people in and I think the principal aim was for the lecturer to stand at the front. I think that there were about six or seven whiteboards and he filled them with notes while staring at the board and talking to the board. And I had to fill them. I had to fill my notebook with notes um, whilst trying to copy it down. So there's no space for sort of thinking about anything. Um, and you, you just kind of just trying to write it down in, in this kind of rush. And and I, and I totally thought that everything was about, you know, just memorizing stuff. So say, like, if you take a kind of um, thing, like prove that root two is irrational. So when if that came up on a test, I, I wouldn't go, oh, this is a situation where I want to uh, use a, a contradiction, work it out step by step, like I know where to start and then I can run it through from there. I just like memorize the whole thing. Yes. Like all the steps. So then like the poor relation of memory, it sometimes works and it sometimes mm. doesn't. And it worked a treat for GCSE. Yes. And it was okay in A-level, but it just made doing a maths degree very, very difficult. And do you get, do you get the sense, Tom, because I, I did an economics degree, um, so um, okay. I, 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 I found this absolutely fascinating. Do you get the sense, and you might, you might not know the answer to this, but is, is that still the norm for how maths is taught at university? Do you have any sense whether things are changing or whether things are still this kind of lecture approach? I would say that massively depends. I guess it depends on who you're teaching. Uh, the incentives are um, 
are different for lecturers and possibly maybe are different now to how they were in um, in those days but um, I think there are really good lecturers who lecture in maths like I don't know if you know Lara Olcock for example she's I think a pretty amazing maths lecturer there at Loughborough um, but yeah I, I mean I don't I don't really know but I think if you're just going oh I have to do this to get on with my research and actually not all my lecturers were like that um, but there were a lot I mean, I took one course, um, which was a guy called Tony Gardner, and it oh, was yes. Maths as a Human Endeavour. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> but I took it in the third year, right? And it was only at that point that I actually realised um, that up until that point, I, I really hadn't been doing any maths. I was just memorising things. And, um, you know, I figured out, I found out by doing that course that there was another way that you could know some stuff and work other things out. And that's kind of how I, I guess I fell back in, in love with maths. Um, and then I didn't really think much about where I'd do a P, PGCE and with who. So it was just a bit of luck that I ended up basically carried on at Birmingham because I did my undergraduate there. Um, and so that I could move back to home. Um, which is really helpful to live at home because you have someone who looks after you, <laughs> um, which I would recommend for new teachers. Um, and then I guess I was just really lucky. I ended up with this power trio of Steph Prestige, uh, Pat Perks and Dave Hewitt as tutors. Steph was my tutor, probably the most amazing teacher I've ever had. And it was really transformational for me that um, and opened my eyes to what, maths was and what teaching was like and what it could be like i mean this this is going to be an impossible question tom but can you kind of make that a bit more concrete what what, what were some of the things steph was doing that, that was was so profound for you uh well i suppose it it's all it's a, it's all a combination of those things that i'd thought maths was like this thing over mm. here mm. because that's the way i'd been taught mostly and i liked my maths teachers at school and stuff and i liked my maths teachers at, at a levels um, and then that's what kind of what it was like in uni and it's just like oh it's too much i'm trying to remember and this i'm running out of space kind of thing um and then there was this total totally different perspective about um understanding it working deeply on ideas and um yeah it was just like nothing else i'd ever uh, i'd ever seen and i and i guess it, when i went into school as a as a beginner um it was quite kind of different it was more like my own experience but i had these quite high ideals about what it could be like mm. right from the start and i mean i could talk a bit more about how we worked on tasks and task design and um, putting the maths at the heart of the task design and rather than kind of frilly bits around the edges. <laughs> yeah. like that. Um, I mean, I'll tell you what, what interests me here, Tom, is, is that like given your experience at, at university as an undergraduate learning it, what, what made you want to carry on and, and teach maths? Because it sounds like it wasn't a particularly positive experience for you learning it. You did well not to be kind of put off for life and, and decide to do something else. What, why do a maths PGCE? Well, I think it's part of my, at that point, I felt like my, part of my identity was I am good at maths. I am a, a maths person. And, you know, I'd gone from being 
a big fish in a small pond to a small fish in a much bigger pond mm. so i realized oh i'm not i'm not as good as i thought i was maybe and i can't just get by i mean i worked really hard because it's because if you don't understand stuff it's, it's really yes. hard work so i i did do a lot of work on it um but yeah i was still into maths uh, and i felt i mean really the reason why people get into maths teaching is not just because they love maths so like now when i'm interviewing people i'm not only interested in whether they like maths um you have to like children and care about trying to make the world a better place essentially and changing people's lives and things like that all those kind of noble things which you do have to remind yourself is why you're there and pretty much (laughs) why why teachers got into it and you know if you've got a maths degree or an economics degree you could be making tons more money no one gets into it to be rich you do it because it's worthwhile so yes. i mean those are the reasons why i got into it and what, and what were the early days of teaching like for you tom in in, in schools either junior pgce or your nqt did, did it come easy to you uh, teaching mathematics were there any surprises in store um well it's <laughs> well, it's a bit more complicated than i imagined it to be in fact i think it's more than complicated i think it's just complex like you can try um the same things in a different situation and they just work completely differently it's like raising a child is complex not, not just complicated yes. um but I, I suppose i thought oh i'm quite close to the age of school kids i'll just make an interesting ways i mean one of the things that i imagined was that people have been teaching maths for a long time everyone will have worked out the good ways to do it so yes. i'll just get all of that um and then but then i'll just i'll, I'll make it kind of like fun ways yes. to practice yes. interesting enjoyable i won't be too strict and all of that that's kind of what i imagined <laughs> it to be like before i started um and then i guess it was quite different to that expectation um yeah in in all sorts of different ways but the thing with i mean we i was mostly taught by pat and steph and steph was my tutor as i mentioned um and we worked a lot on task design and things right from the start um and and thinking about the maths and and thinking about how it would connect and make sense for the students and things like that so i think i was really lucky in that respect and um, you, you know it's, it's interesting this and there were two, two things just on this tom and um, the first is because we we were we started teaching roughly the same time i was a couple of yeah. years after you i i was um 2004 was my my first okay. uh, teaching like now back then the, the, there wasn't the abundance of resources available that, that, that there are today there was obviously standard units and, and others of kind of malcolm swan's work and so on well even that was a night for another oh well, yeah that's true yeah that's at, six maybe two and five yeah you're right i mean i was i did my pgc at nottingham so i think we got kind of a bit of a sneak uh, preview sneak preview yeah <laughs> yeah uh, um, so yeah th- those were the kind of kind of main tasks but but we had to yeah essentially create our own tasks plan plan our own lessons and the two things really the, the first thing is i wonder how much um, of an emphasis there is on task design these days in in teacher training and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing because uh, that leads on to my kind of second point it's 
were you in a position at that stage to to design good tasks did you have that experience as as a as a novice teacher to to be able to to know what it is that that makes a good task and that the think the maths is at the heart of it any thoughts on that well i think in lots of ways um pre-internet I was in a much better position because we didn't have the kind of situation where we were told to go out and make it all up ourselves. We had. Um, so the big thing about um, the big thing that we worked on was adapting and extending tasks. So I don't know if you're familiar with Pat and Steph have a book called Adapting and Extending. No, no, no. Tell, tell me. Um, so es- essentially. That's the whole way that I think about kind of task design is is in terms of adapting and extending. So what you do is you take um, a familiar problem, a problem that you've already got, say, from a textbook or from an exam paper or something like that, um, and you write down the, the key features of that task, so the givens, they would call them, so... Um, you list all the givens and then you take any one of those and you just ask what if not that thing but something else um but the place we were starting from for textbooks um for tasks was textbooks right Mm. and textbooks are very different to something like googling pythagoras worksheet or looking on the tes um or something like that because with a textbook they won't be perfect. I mean, I think our textbooks in this country could be much better. Um, they won't be perfect, but they're much better than something that just some random has made up and it's not part of a coherent mathematical journey. And like at least uh, probably a team of people have worked on it with experience in that kind of thing. And it's been edited and checked and, and stuff like that. Whereas, I mean, I, I often sort of complain about this in, in terms of my uh, practice kind of stuff. Is if you if you want some worksheets to practice, and you look on TES, for example, for maths there are over seven hundred thousand yes. worksheets. Um, how do you choose? Yeah. How do you choose which one to do? And uh, I think that's really difficult. It's much better to have a kind of restricted restricted choice like the one textbook or the one or two textbooks you've got and then if you look at your textbook it's a much better place to start for beginners in particular i think to go what do i not like about this explanation Mm. oh they've gone too quick there i should put in some more right Or, or or before this we need x y and z um but then you get on to adapting and extending so you can get your um boring exercise that's in the textbook which which i might do because um i might have a purpose around wanting to check that everyone's got the right sort of thing so i don't want it to open or something like that um for in terms of like having some assessment um i kind of think do you know the convergent divergent model no, I'm already out of my depth already, Tom. Go on, go on. T- tell, me, tell me about this. So Colin Foster, a friend yes. of the podcast, yes. has, <laughs> um, has this really lovely paper about task design, and it's the convergent-divergent model. So uh, a kind of good way to think about tasks is 
you have something that at the start it all kind of converges on one answer okay. so um uh, i think like do you you know the the etude with the expressions do you know the one i mean um yeah, I tell you what. Well, well, what I can certainly do for, for for listeners is I I can I can link to this if people want to to look it up. Could you could you describe it, Tom, as best you can, just for people who are listening in or just audio only? Okay, so you've got um, right four nodes at each corner of a square and a line linking each of those nodes, and in each of those nodes is a kind of expression, so something like 2x plus 4, uh, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but 2x plus 4, 6x squared, something, uh, 3x minus 4, or something like yes. that. And then what you have to do is, along each line, right, work out the solution of that as an equation. So if I've got the, I can't remember what I said now, but the 2x plus 3 and the 6, um, I'd go along that line. I have to solve two x plus three equals six. Yes, that's right. And the way it's set up, it essentially forms six equations, right? Because there's um, six equations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Got it. Picture it. And Got it. In his first example, that's really nice, but not the one I just described. Um, all the answer, the answers that, that you get to those six equations are one, two, three, four, five, six. Yes, I, I know. So there's this little bit of surprise, and it's lovely. Um, and but it's convergent in the sense that everyone does that one and everyone's going to get those answers. Yes. So if you want to find out if you want to sort of talk through the answers or check whether people are doing the right method or have a method for this or whether you need to teach more and all that sort of thing, you can do that. And then it diverges because you can go, oh, try and make up your own that has integer answers or try and make up one that goes two, three, four, five, six, seven or something like that. It's it's interesting just on that, Tom. I, I think this the convergent. I, I, I've never thought of it in those terms before, but I think that the convergent nature, and I don't know if you agree with this, is something that's that's really overlooked in, in some tasks, some kind of so-called open ended or less structured tasks. Yeah. It's so important, that convergent thing, for the exact reason you said, just on a purely practical reason. Um, as, as a teacher, I need to know whether kids are getting things right or wrong in those initial stages. And it's much easier to do if everyone's working on the same problem than if people are, are working on different things. And it, it really helps for pair, you know, peer-to-peer discussion and, and going through answers and so on. And yeah, I don't know if you get that sense, but sometimes I, I see some tasks and I think, wow, I really like where this is going. But I'm not too happy with the starting point because it's going to make my life as a teacher and students' lives quite difficult to know whether they're they're starting off on the right foot. I don't I don't know if that makes sense. Well, yeah, I think often you get starting points, but they're really not necessarily the starting point for your class. Like you, some other stuff might have, might go before, and other stuff might happen during, and other stuff might happen after. So. There's, there's that kind of thing. Um, I find that convergent, divergent thing quite a helpful thing for me to think about. But I suppose a key thing for me is uh, is what your purposes are as a teacher. Like you can just chuck out a divergent thing if you're not that worried about assessing them. Mm. Like if you've already assessed them in some other way, yes. or, or, or or you don't want to do that for whatever reason. Um, and I think the way that you – it's one of the ways that I think about how how you might reflect on your own teaching is to be really clear about what your purposes are of why you're doing what you're doing. And then I can only ever evaluate it in terms of whether it, whether it met that purpose or not. So I might 
decide that I'm going to have, you know, and something I might recommend for, for new teachers. In fact, we get all our mentors to agree on this is that that you start off lessons on their first placement, that they have very easy starters, very easy settling starter activities with the purpose just being to settle the class. So it's not about having questions that are that are too difficult or it's not about having a problem that they can't solve that's going to motivate some new learning later or anything like that um, and if that was your purpose this kind of task would not meet that purpose so I think it's really important to be clear what your purposes are for any anything that you're doing in a lesson that's right and um, would you because uh, i've been doing a, a little bit of work with um, with nqts and rqts over the last couple of months particularly around lesson planning and it's yeah. it's fascinating that they have they approach it in the way i used to approach it which tends to be kind of resource driven so i'm teaching this let's find a great resource either on tears or on joe morgan's blog or on the secure shared area and let's essentially build our teaching around this resource but uh, again i i think there's there's there's, there's problems with that would you would yeah. you say that purpose is the kind of first question to be to be thinking about when you start your planning well start with the resource is not about putting the maths at the heart it's yes. not going what maths do these kids need right now yes. um and yeah i mean i think there are some tasks that everyone should do sure um and that might fit into a journey a well-planned journey through the curriculum or whatever but yeah generally i sort of think it's a bad idea to start with a resource i mean it can work short-term gains in the same way that it can work in the short term to go oh i've got to cover x y and z yes um but really it's about going what do what do my class need mm. i think and that, I mean, we'll, we'll talk more about this as, when we get into working with beginning teachers shortly. But that, that yeah, I mean, it's hard, it's, hard, it's, it's hard that though, isn't it? You know, it's 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 a hard question to to ask, particularly if you've never taught that class before, never taught yep. this topic before. It's 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 a tough question to start with. Whereas a colleague's given me this fancy resource. Oh, yep. I'll use that. It's a much easier solution, isn't it? Yeah. And um, do you know? say like there's some research about teacher like to be an effective or an expert teacher you need to uh, i think it's berlin i said you need to know your um subject you need to know how to teach your subject and you need to know who you're teaching nice. right and if you take like any that. of those three things away then that that teacher is no longer an expert right nice. so so you can get the best teacher in the world teaching a class they don't know and they might be able to do things that look effective, but they're not teaching expertly without knowing the class. And, you know, similarly with, I mean, we might get back to uh, what I do now. In about an hour, in about an hour, yeah. <laughs> um, and, like, they're, they're really good at their subject, but the subject yes. knowledge that you get from doing a maths degree is not the subject that you're teaching. Yes. It's, it's, it's just it's different stuff it's fascinating and i guess that's why there's um, again and I, I can't I, I won't be able to quote the specific research but i know dylan william talks about this the why it's uh, a, potentially a good idea to have a continuation like the same teacher taking the same class throughout you know year seven yeah. year 11 or or just certainly for, for the gcse year because you don't have this kind of cold start every september where you're trying to get to know know your kids would, would that be right yeah but that's also true for other reasons because it holds 
you hold yourself more accountable if you know yes. you're going to be carrying a class on. So you can't yes. go, oh, I won't teach uh, simultaneous equations properly <laughs> uh, to Tom because <laughs> someone else can pick that up next yes. year if you know that you have to pick it up. I think that makes a difference. Yes. Um, and I think there are other ways. So I think that's a really good idea to kind of carry on with classes wherever possible. It's not always possible. Um yeah, I think there are other good reasons to do that about getting to know the stuff that you're teaching, the pedagogy around what you're teaching. So that second thing. Um, and that's kind of one of the reasons why I end up thinking like I like teaching mixed groups, because then I just do the same the same tasks each year to different to different groups. So I get more practice, more better at those at teaching those tasks and better at getting more out of those tasks that's interesting that and you, you, you like, come to that like, like a true professional podcast guest you're teasing things coming yeah. later that's that's lovely that tom but just on that just in case i forget to say this because this is something i've been thinking a lot about recently and this may well take us on another tangent but it, it'll be fine um is the um i, I like to whether it's repeating specific tasks or activities year upon year um, for the exact reason you've said because I get better at, at, at teaching them and working with the kids and asking the right questions and, and providing the right support and, and the right challenge and so on but also I'm a big fan of um, working with the same structures of activities so whether it's yeah. my SSDD problems or whether it's what I call intelligent practice because again both me and the kids get used to the structure of the activities so less curriculum time is taken up trying to figure out well what do we do where do we start and more of it can be spent thinking about the mathematics again does, does, does that make sense yeah all of that all of that i definitely agree with i mean that's one of the things that you mentioned the standards unit the big yes. blue boxing um that's one of the reasons that's so good it's not only are those tasks brilliantly designed um and have gone through a design process where they've been refined and improved and everything but also there's basically only six types of task yes. so once you've learned what doing and always sometimes never might look like the class have learned that the next time they can just do the maths yes. and that and that's that 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 thing about putting the maths at the heart like you need variety but not too much variety yes and it again and it's 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 the thing that it's it's beneficial for both teacher and students i think that's the thing that i often overlooked the fact that the kids benefit from the structure but as yeah. teachers we get better at working with with that structure whereas if it's a different structure every lesson you're you're unfamiliar with it the kids are unfamiliar with it and a, a lot of time gets wasted outside of thinking about the mathematics yeah i think that's that's super important well i think we ought to be paying more attention to things that make teachers lives easier when we're in we've got a workload crisis yes. and so many teachers are so close to burnout for yes. so much of the time um, and, and it is it sounds very noble to say there's only a point in doing things because it makes things better for children but we also need to think about what makes things better for teachers yes Yes, I, I, I completely agree. And again, I am going to steer us back in a second. But one more point on that. Topic. You, you're setting off loads of light bulbs in my head. I'll tell, no, no, it's, it's, it's brilliant. I, I'll tell you the other, the other problem that I mistake I've fallen into, though, is let's take something like so the standards units will have a number of kind of card sort activities in there. And there's some yeah. absolutely amazing ones. Like for me, um, you mentioned kind of tasks that every child should do uh, before. I absolutely love the one that has the you're matching up the box 
box plots to the frequency distribution to the cumulative frequency diagram like that yeah, really is is so special for whether you're doing kind of a level statistics or if you're um, doing GCSE it's like it's an amazing activity but I'll tell you a trap I've fallen into and I wonder if you can either relate to this yourself Tom or whether this is something you see in your kind of novice teachers you work with and that's thinking that right that card sort's brilliant so every card sort's brilliant so it's taking it's a structure that w is really really good um but obviously with 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 the wrong kind of content or ideas in there um it's 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 not going to be great and I, i've made this mistake with tarsia so some tarsia jigsaws i used to be absolutely obsessed with them i think some of them are absolutely brilliant the way they're structured can lead to some great discussions but some tarsia jigsaws are absolutely terrible and no better than any old random worksheet so i think there's still this danger that the structure doesn't determine the quality it's it's whether it's is the right mathematics at the heart of it or is it well put together it's their considerations and again i'd imagine for novice teachers that's quite a difficult thing for them to get to grips with yeah it's, i mean everything's difficult when you start right so all of that is difficult and i guess all of that comes down to me for the the just banana armor rhythm of going it ain't what you do it's the way that you do it like you can't just take um this you have to think about i suppose what you have to think about is what will they be thinking about yeah another like, willingham yes yeah like any kind of um uh I well I, I mean you i don't want all the uh all the good card sorts to be thrown out with the the, the bath water with all the bad yes. with all the bad ones um so you do have to be thinking about what will they actually be doing and i don't know i get kind of the sense often in maths things that look very similar are very different mathematical experiences depending on quite subtle um quite subtle changes that you might make to the um to the task um let me give an example of something that i've done Right, and I've seen loads of people do, um, and you can you can try and spot the problem with this kind of thing. You know where you get a load of round things, and you want them to know the relationship between the diameter of a circle and the circumference of that circle. So you, okay. what you do is you get a load of round things, and you measure the diameters, and then you get some string, and you measure the circumferences. Yes, I've been there. Yeah, I'm liking it yep. so far. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Well, what goes wrong? Um, I've seen what I've seen, I've seen measurement error come into play. So, so that would be a bit of a classic that the kids can't can't measure them accurately, and you start getting something that well, sometimes it's absolutely nowhere near pi, but sometimes is is you kind of when you get all the measurements together and average them, it looks a bit like pi, but it's not quite. And then it's quite a conceptual leap to say, well, actually, it is this fixed ratio. I've I've, I've seen that as an issue, but are, are you thinking something else? Yeah, I mean, so all those kind of things like. Um measuring you measure it and you want them to go oh it's always the same but yes. it's never the same yes right? yes um, yes that's it whereas if you just tweak that task a little bit and i mean i think there are better tasks that you could do for this but if you tweak that task just slightly and go right about how many times does the diameter fit around the circumference yes it's a completely different task right because you're working on the awareness then that every time it is the same it's about three times right. it's about three right. and 
and it's a very subtle tweak. Like if you were watching my lesson, um, and I did one in one lesson and one in the other lesson, like you might not even tell the difference between those two things, but they're very, very subtly different about what the kind of the purpose is and what they end up thinking about, and then hence what the outcome is. Wow. Um, and I think there's all sorts of things that are a bit like that. Um, but again, it goes back to this problem that that is a hard thing to to realise, right? Like, how many would you were you realising that as a as a trainee teacher? Or is is has that come to you kind of later on? Um, yeah, I'll be, I'll was, be annoyed. I'll be annoyed at you if you say you're onto that as a PGC student, Tom. I, I might hang. I did have very good cheers. I did have very good cheers. So, but yeah, I mean. Like like most things, I've picked up some experience and then I've reflected on that experience and then um, I've got better through reflecting on that experience, kind of thing. Yes, yes. Well, I'll tell you what. Let, let, let me steer you back then. Let, let, let's let's because we've left the listeners on a cliffhanger. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. At, at this rate, this uh, yeah, we, we might have to do a part two, three, four, and five with Antonio. But we've we've left teachers on a cliffhanger here. So you you're your PGC. You're in your early stages of your career. What what happens next? Um. So yeah, I taught into um, uh, schools in Birmingham. I taught at Great Bar, which at that point was like the biggest school in Europe. So that was an interesting wow. how, experience. How big? Uh, well, there was about two and a half thousand Jeez. kids. So yeah, I taught set seventeen for maths. So that's, <laughs> that's how big it was. Wow. Um, yeah, and then I had a bit of responsibility there, but I moved to. Kings Norton Girls to be second in department because my old head of department, who I really rated, had gone there as assistant head, basically. Um, and then I stayed at that school uh, until 2015. Right. Um, and then I was head of, head of department for most of that time, so nine or ten years, uh, and head of faculty and stuff like that. Um I guess I was quite interested in um, improving my own teaching, so research. I got quite, I got interested in like kind of fairly early on, I guess, um, and that was the main reason I became head of department. So basically, so that I could carry on doing what I wanted to do in my own classroom. Um, and I think what I was looking for, hoping for at the time, was to hit upon the formula for effective teaching. Yes. Um, but I was really trying to learn that from other people, which I don't know if that's necessarily the right way, um, ultimately. So I joined like ATM, um, basically initially so that I could get the discount on the books. I had some, <laughs> like thinkers or something. And I was like, oh, this is really good. I need to buy some more. And uh, for the and benefit, 25% off. <laughs> <laughs> for the benefit of listeners, this is the Association of Teachers. I always get it wrong. Association of Te Teaching Mathematics? Am teachers of. Teachers of Mathematics. And this is the, um, would you call it a subject association? Would that be the, yeah. the, the right terminology to use? Fantastic. <laughs> so, yeah, you're right. Because members are getting a big, big, yeah, big chunky discount there. Nice. So, so that yes. was your initial incentive. That was my incentive. But then through that, I've just met loads of amazing people through branch meetings and uh, conferences and things like that. Um, I was quite into assessment for learning, so we'd done a bit of work on that on the PG. 
um, PGCE. Um, and my wife was doing a master's. She's also a head of maths. Um, so we went to a talk that was Dietmar Kukman and Jeremy Hodgin. Yes. So that was stuff on uh, the ICAM stuff, like yes. 30 years on, how basically we haven't got any better at teaching algebra, um, <laughs> but they're, they're just a bit worse earlier because we do things a bit earlier and things like that. Um, and I've, um, around about that time, with a number of other people's, uh, with a number of other people, we set up the Birmingham branch of the ATM. So that's where people come and give sessions. Um, and that's where I really got to know Dave Hewitt. Um, and then eventually we got a bit of funding to do a research project on grid algebra with another friend who I'd worked with at Great Bar, who we were both heads of maths in different schools. Um, and actually it was around about that time, so this is probably about 2008 or nine, that we started very lazily working on practice, um, which we probably won't get around to. <laughs> Part two, maybe. <laughs> Uh, and this is you. This is you and Dave working on this. Is that right? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, Dave's been a massive influence on me, but he didn't really teach very much in my year when we were doing the PG, um, the PGC, because at that time they had a kind of rolling two-year program, so people could do a two-year course. Um, and he taught that. He was teaching the first year of that, basically. So, right. Um, yeah, and he's been hugely influential on me. Um, and eventually he said that Steph, who was my tutor, was retiring from Birmingham. Would I be interested um, in applying? But he thought I already had like a master's and like qualifications that would let me do that. Um, but I didn't. So then I did a master's. I did an MRS at Birmingham um, part time alongside being head of department. Wow, that, that must have been tough. I honestly don't know how that happened, really. I don't, honestly don't know how I did that. Did you have, did um, you have kids at the time? No. <laughs> so, I mean, that's part of the thing, maybe. And what was your master's on? What, what's an MRes? I'm not familiar with that. So an MRes is Master of Research, basically. Oh, nice. nice. So, um, yeah, it's quite... It's, in some ways, it's quite a long way to get a master's because you do all the um, research training that you would do if you had if you did a taught uh, like a PhD, right? Um, but then you only get a master's at the end of it, but you have to write a longer dissertation and stuff like that. Sounds um, good though, master of research. That's a good title. <laughs> well, it turned out to be good for me later on because you know it's really really helpful. Um, yes. But at the time, I think you could get a, you could get a master's in a quicker way um and just uh, and again at the risk of just taking us off a slight other uh, another diversion is that is the essence of that it's it's teaching you to to research better or to be more critical of of research what's the essence of that master's tom well it's definitely those two things it's to become a better researcher but you only become a better researcher by being able to critically look at um, other research and critically read other research and then put ideas together and put in all the nuance and caveats um, that everything I talk about today won't have basically <laughs> uh, 
and that's um, and the reason I ask is that that's obviously quite pertinent at this stage in terms of maths education with the and I, I don't know if you agree with me on this I know Mark McCourt d- disagrees but there's um, been quite a um, a kind of I don't know, rising the popularity of, of teachers talking about research and I think that's inherently a good thing but I guess the downside of that is you you take everything that you read to be true and kind of cling on to a, a relatively small sample of, of, of what you've read and take that yeah. to be gospel is, is that something you, you see happening and and do you see that as an issue that kind of research populism uh, yes. yes um I mean I think on the whole it's it's better than not having that yes, yes. Um, but i wonder if it's kind of a stage that you have to go through when you look at you start looking at research and you read one thing and you go <laughs> oh right it says this yes um, yeah yeah it says, don't, don't have a uh, displays in your classroom <laughs> oh, don't, don't be there. bringing that up tom don't be bringing that one up. Well, i do I, feel I, partly responsible because i think i sent, might have sent I, you that paper. i think you did i think you did so hate mail <laughs> to tom franken please <laughs> <laughs> um when it's if the reality is it's just a lot more complicated than yes, that yes so if you i mean if you take the display thing um the the way that study is set up it's someone's phd um they're doing very controlled very controlled thing they're they're not learning realistic material uh it's not like a normal classroom it's only three hours or something or whatever it is and it's not taking into account the kind of motivational aspects of of working in a nice place or uh, of having a nice display or having your own work up there the things that that might do for your kind of self-efficacy and confidence and all of that sort of stuff is just not in that because that's not what basic research is about basic research is about trying to isolate things and test an idea but then it's it's not a straightforward thing to go how does that apply into the real world and what i can do with it as a result of my teaching and this yeah. is and, and, and th- th- i mean this I, again will will probably be something that we we come on to more in in a in a subsequent interview tom but uh, the thing the thing that the thing that's always fascinated me about education research and again I, I, you, the, the journey you described is exactly my journey i'd never read a single thing and then i started reading stuff and i got obsessed with everything i read and it annoyed me whenever then i read something that contradicted something else i'd read because i'm thinking why can't there just be some coherent journey here some coherent narrative that i can just follow but the thing that that fascinates me is i don't know like surely kind of teaching and the classroom context and all that is it's just too complicated to get any kind of meaningful stuff out of it like if you take something as like displays that you think well that's a relatively small part of 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 classroom and what kids classroom experience yeah, it's too and so small, on. Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but even with the, with the problems you're describing when you start talking motivation self-efficacy and all that kind of thing like how on earth do you ever get any kind of meaningful results out of kind of classroom any kind of education research if that makes sense well i think it's a really really good question um i i think we're we're at a point where there are some well the, the to go back to the willingham thing he calls them like boundaries there are some boundaries within which we could work um but if you if you cross the boundary you're probably going to get some bad outcomes and like so i think the example he often gives is like if you want people to do some critical thinking like they have to have something to think with they have to know some stuff um 
But the principle that you have to know some stuff doesn't tell you anything about how they should be taught. Only yes. that that's a boundary. Like if they don't know any stuff, it's very hard to do the thinking that you want them to do. And I, I think we're kind of in the position where we've just got, we know some of the boundaries. Um, but yeah, it's hugely complicated and there's loads of research and, and actually a lot of it depends on your perspective, the way that you're looking at things, um, kind of what angle you're coming from. Um, and that's, I, I suppose, part of learning to be a researcher is about being really clear of what you're taking for granted and what you're assuming and trying to say, um, I might not always think about this, but in this study, this is the perspective I'm coming from. Yes. Um, it's it's hard for for teachers though, isn't it? Because I I like I, I'm I'm a big Twitter user and I love yeah. following um, the kind of debates that happen on Twitter. And, and two former podcast guests often go head to head on this. So you, you get Helen Williams um, versus Dylan William is one of my favourite kind of personal battles. That, <laughs> it, hasn't, it hasn't flared up for a while, unfortunately, but I'm sure it'll be back in in the new year. And what often happens there is kind of Dylan will quote some research and then Helen will come back with some research that says the exact opposite, and then Dylan will come back with this and it goes back and forth. And it, as kind of somebody observing that as a teacher you think what am i supposed to do with this do, do i choose a side and, and what's my basis of that do i just go with my intuition or do i just ignore it because i i, I can't be sure like are, are there and i don't know whether this is, is is the right question to ask but are there kind of things that we can rely on kind of best bets that that, that, that research has told us or is it just far too complicated um i think for me that goes back a bit to your purposes like being clear about your purposes and then that can guide the things that might be the most helpful thing to do in that situation but you should also like ease ease off yourself a bit because there's quite a wide margin i think that you can operate in and be fairly successful like yes on the whole like teachers are really good aren't they 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 basically do uh, they basically do what they're supposed to do like the, it basically works and and often what we're talking about is kind of like quite marginal things um and sometimes maybe we don't talk about bigger things that might have a more of an effect um what, what do you mean can you give an example of that uh, well if you take something uh, like a classic example for me would be something like group work yes like group work is probably really effective for most learners in lots of situations but that's a big claim that Tom well sure but it's quite hard (laughs) it's relatively hard to do well and like most people's experience of it is maybe you try that out the first time and it doesn't work well for you because you didn't do it in kind of well-defined parameters yes um or you didn't build up to it and you didn't or you didn't teach the learners like what was expected of group work and what group group work looked like and the difference between working in a group and as a group and um you didn't have group goals and individual accountability or whatever it is so you end up going oh that didn't work as well so group work doesn't work yes right and it's that's not the kind of conclusion that you can draw from that kind of experiment basically yes, because there are too yes. many other things that are influencing it um so yeah i mean it, it might be that doing group work all the time is a brilliant idea i mean i'm happy to be proven wrong on that but there are kind of systems of where you where you try and um 
define it a bit better where it actually it does well for these outcomes that you're interested in. Um, yeah, I I I, th- I, co- I completely agree, and I guess this is it's the same kind of thing if you take it to the extreme with where you have kind of explicit instruction versus inquiry. Like unless you know exactly what you mean by that, unless you know the kids know and have practiced and have rehearsed the, the for want of a better phrase the behavior or the way they're expected to act and so on and so forth you could have a horrendous experience with either of those things which all of yeah. a sudden causes you to to rule them out forever it's it's yeah. t- it's tough isn't it Tom? yeah i think so and i think it's just it's an area that like more work needed there's there's much more work needed um people often cite kind of like the medical profession as going they have these digests and and, and things it just in a way where we just don't in we don't have someone that is the buffer between um, educational research and what goes on in classrooms because a lot of our a lot of what we know about teaching and good teaching is tied up in teachers heads really we know much more about much more of that is in in my opinion much more of that is in teachers heads than is in research journals that's interesting and mate well maybe you could be this buffer tom through your through your seven appearances on this podcast that we're going to need to book in book in maybe. yeah <laughs> i mean where am i up to in the career so Sorry. we're up to yeah exactly so you're doing so you left us on another cliffhanger you're doing a bit of work with with dave hewitt kind of on the side you still had a maths and then you're asked i was doing a master's exactly you're doing your master's and you've uh, you've been asked to kind of apply for for steph's job i think it was yeah so I missed the boat on that because someone else had to do that because I didn't have a master's. So then I did a master's. Um, yeah, I was going to say what it was about, maybe. It was, yeah, that, so that it. was about um, comparing groups, uh, well, students' experiences of maths when they were taught in mixed entertainment groups compared to when they were taught in sets um so that's what that was about and which is another massive area which uh yeah we'll we'll get on to at some point yeah can i can i just ask you just on that tom was you what was your um and again forgive me if you if you already mentioned this but at the school where you were head of department was was that um mixed entertainment or was that setted um and was it that consistent all the way through um yeah, so I taught mixed entertainment. Well, at that time, I was teaching mixed entertainment. Um, it wasn't mixed entertainment when I started. I don't think it's mixed entertainment now. And um, you, you'd brought that in, had you? Yeah. yeah. Oh, interesting. That's, um, a te- that's a good teaser. I like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think maybe we... I mean, one of the things, if you want to do mixed entertainment, there's lots of reasons why you might, but I think you should bring it in slowly. Um so yeah i think oh when i started that we must have been about four years into it so we just started with year seven and then then the next year we had year seven and eight and so on that's interesting so we had had that in lots by then um we'll we'll definitely we'll definitely talk about that 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 sounds great okay tell me tell me more tell me more yeah okay so then um yeah so then I wasn't really sure what to do. We so we're at about yeah, it's about 2015, um, and I really liked my school. I loved my department. I loved my kids. I loved teaching maths. Um, but then someone else was retiring at the university, um, and I sort of felt like because I'd had 
such a, a transformative experience and I thought the course was like really important for that I felt kind of like a responsibility um, to go and keep that going so yes. that's why I applied um, to Birmingham where I currently work so I started there in 2015 so I lead on the PG Dipped in secondary maths um, and I teach uh, also some maths sub subject knowledge enhancement and supervise some master's students stuff like that um, around about that time I started going to seminars at the maths education center in Loughborough because I was looking for somewhere to do a PhD um, someone really wise told me that what you have to do is find your tribe and I felt like that was my tribe at the Maths Education Centre because you've just got all these brilliant people but a really broad way uh, a really broad range of people interested in maths education so there's things like analysing pedagogy teaching learning assessment you've got that's where Dave Hewitt is now but you've got Colin Foster Ian Jones, Lara Alcock, and then on the other side you've got uh, people with more of a psychology or a cognitive psychology bent um, experts in numerical cognition, people like Matthew Ingalls, Camilla Gilmore, um, people looking at math, math reasoning and, and loads of crossover between them and um, so I did. I was lucky enough to get a scholarship, a studentship, to do a PhD there. So I've been in that, yeah, since uh, 2016, I think. Um, and your PhD will definitely be the subject of uh, of, of your return to the show. I'm locking you in contractually now to, to to come back on this show, Tom. But just just tease that. Well, what's your PhD on? Um, so I'm exploring the nature of practicing. Uh, and it's practicing as opposed to practice like the general things teachers do. I'm just in, I'm interested in the main in how people make decisions about what they give out in order to kind of develop the kids expertise. Um, and then also a kind of, um, there's an intervention side of it where Dave and I have got this thing about practice through progress, which we're trying to explore. Um, so that's what that's about. It's fascinating, yeah. and and I, I went to to Loughborough for the first time um, a few months ago when when this podcast had come out, and I, I saw you there. I was lucky enough to to, to 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 run a workshop there, and the facilities are just ridiculous. How how good they are. I was speaking to Colin uh, Colin Foster about um, I've been. This is a lot a bit of a tangent, but um, the, the, I'll, there's a slight relevance to it. The, um, I was I was. Uh, and speaking to some AQA examiners about future technology that they're using, and, and one thing they were talking about is that they've had kids sit exams using kind of eye tracking software yeah. to, to see where their eyes go. Um, if there's a diagram placed kind of above the text or below the text or to kind of integrated within the text of exam questions. Uh, and also well, what impact having kind of big blank spaces has and so on and so forth. And yeah. I was telling all this to Colin and he's going, oh, yeah, we've got one of those eye tracking things at, at Loughborough. Like it's, it, it seems to be, it seems to be the place to be, doesn't it? For, for kind of exciting things happening. Yeah. I'm actually moving there uh, in February to a bombshell. That is uh, <laughs> well done. <laughs> People have just slammed on the brakes to the car there listening to this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've, I've been, yeah, it's my fifth year as a teacher educator at Birmingham. Um, but they've just, Loughborough has won this big grant to open yes. a new centre for maths cognition. So it's going to be, 
I mean, it's already big, but it's about to be the largest centre for maths education research in the UK. So that's wow. really exciting. Um, and I'm in an education department at the moment, which is really good. You get kind of a broad thing. But in a maths education department, like everyone's talking about maths. Yeah. And they have yes. um, one next next door to the eye tracking lab they've got like the toddler lab so they've got two-year-olds sort of learning so they're trying to learn about how like numbers acquire meaning and things like that um but then all the way up to people researching undergraduate um how they learn and all stuff like that um no, I mean, I'm, incredi- I'm incredibly jealous. Also, the, um, the the kind of on-campus hotel I stayed at is one of the best breakfasts and evening meals I've ever had in my life. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely a place. To you have to definitely... choose your protein. That's right. Yeah, it's exactly what it is. That was exactly what it is. I was with the uh, the British uh, Paralympic weightlifting yeah. team. So, uh, yeah, they, they were stuffing it down and I was, yeah, I'll be reading it. But, uh, yeah, fantastic. Well, and, I, and I suppose in a way that's sort of kind of the remit of that is is – is partly uh, to fill that gap that we were talking about because the new centre, I think, is about doing basic research um, but also about helping teachers to get into contact with that. Um, So there's like designing curriculum materials, but I think there's a place for teachers to be more part of that research as opposed to sort of the subject of it, if that makes sense. Oh, that's interesting, yes. Um, so, I mean, you were there for the Lumen thing. Yes, the, yes. Um, the Loughborough University Maths Education Network, which essentially is about providing free CPD for schools in a time where it is hard to know what you should be doing and yes. and you sh- you'll feel obliged to be research informed. Um, but it is hard to, to kind of to do that. But then I think the Lumen thing is about Provide, trying to provide practical ways for applying some of that maths research in the classroom. Yes. And obviously, you were a great success. It was <laughs> Can only go and get better from there. But yeah, we'll see. But fantastic. All right, Tom. Well, would you, we've we've got through after an hour. You're uh, to the end of your, well, where, where you currently are now. Um, let let me ask you this then, just because what what's annoying me here is that um, you're making a bit too much sense, Tom, and uh, everything's. I'm, I'm feeling a bit kind of a bit bit down on myself. So let, let's let's start talking about things that have gone wrong for you in the past. So I'm I'm interested in your favourite failure so this could be a uh, a lesson you taught that didn't go so well it could be some training you did with some of the uh, beginning teachers um, I'm, I'm looking for an experience that didn't go according to plan and crucially what you learned from it so again this is one where i have far too much choice so i probably <laughs> won't make something that i'm particularly happy with um and i was th- i was thinking about um a common experience i had certainly early on is where I explain something really clearly and everyone's been able to do it, but then it just hasn't meant anything. Like they haven't had to think hard and later it's been like, you've never taught it kind of thing. Oh, that's interesting. Um, but I, I, I mean, to be fair, I watch a lot of lessons that are a bit like that. Um, and this is, this is where you're talking here, like the teacher's given a real kind of crystal clear explanation that, that makes sense at the time, but because the kids haven't been, engaged or prompted to think hard it doesn't stick is it is it that kind of thing yeah so i mean i've taught lessons like this but i've I've seen lots of lessons like this where they teach you know how to solve loads of equations like of the form ax plus b equals c 
Yes. Right. And you do that, and I'm in a very privileged position now where I sit next to um, kids and I go, I, I just put the, the the AX and the B the other way around. And <laughs> yeah, I go, yeah. oh, so, so how would you do this? 3 plus 2X equals 14 or something. And um, <laughs> you can guess what they do. Yeah, the world crumbles, right? Yeah, yeah. I can picture and, it. And I ask that because I'm interested in their response. But I asked that because one day I asked that after teaching a lesson and I realised they couldn't do it and I hadn't taught anything and I thought I had. Um, but that's not actually, that's not the kind of thing I was going to talk about. I was going to talk about the exact opposite. Okay. Um, because I had a conversation in school a couple of days ago that reminded me of this uh, lesson and the more I thought about it, more terrible things kept coming <laughs> back to me. It sounds good. I like um, it already. So... This was um yeah, this was a lesson on uh what I wanted to be practicing. It was essentially area and circumference of a circle. Okay. Um it was year nine. It was a split group that I saw once a fortnight, I think. Um and yeah, what had happened I just wanted to give them some practice on area and circumference of circles. Um and in order to try and increase their fluency, I've kind of, we might get into this a bit later, but I think that's about subordinating that skill to something else. Um, well, what are you going to have to tell us what you mean by that? Uh, so, well, actually, if I just do this, if okay. I say this example, so I thought I'll teach, I'll teach them arc length and sector area, but I'll do it in a way where they have to practice area and circumference. Okay, yes, I see. So they're doing it. Um, and I mean, there's there's loads of stories for this, um, but like Whitehead said, civilization advances by extending the number of important operations that we can perform without thinking about them. So the, the the goal of that kind of task, and yeah, we can dig into this much more later. I mean, this is one of the key things that I'm really interested in. Is the thing that I want to develop fluency w with. I don't want to be thinking about it. I want to be able to do it without thinking about it. So I'm trying to move to this like higher level where mm. my attention's on something else, but I'm just getting loads of practice of the thing that the teacher actually wants you to get better at. Okay. So this is sometimes called like the inner and outer meaning of the tasks, like Dick Tartar called it, where the inner meaning is what's known to the teacher. So in this case, I want them to get better at area and circumference of a circle but the thing that they think they're working on is arc length and sector areas and okay. i'm not necessarily expecting them to be able to do that as a result but to get better at the other thing oh okay so the outer thing isn't your kind of purpose for doing this it's it's the inner thing yeah oh, but that's interesting. but the outer thing is what the kids think basically right okay yeah so um the snag was we got a call from ofsted <laughs> right. But I was like, right, I'm not changing. This is yeah, the thing yeah. I think they should do. Yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, there, there are all sorts of things. Um, but what happened was I, I started teaching this lesson in the way that I planned to do it. We did a bit of work on um, some things that I thought were helpful, like and um, essentially, the way I was teaching it was was going very general, where we were working on. I showed them loads of um, 
uh, parts of circles with the whole circle drawn in and I was going what fraction is shaded and I wanted yep. you to go if it says 75 degrees that you'd say 75 360ths so yes. we did loads of practice stuff like that um, but they were normally a class that would ask lots of questions and say if they didn't know but when the inspector was in there just completely clammed up <laughs> yeah right? I remember. yep yep you know like and I think what it was is they thought they were helping. Yeah, people. exactly. That's exactly it. That is like 100%. The, the didn't contract is that we sit here quietly. So they didn't ask <laughs> yeah. any questions of me. They didn't ask each other. And I guess I, I can't remember exactly, but I think I got a bit panicked and I gave out this task that I designed, yeah. which I guess would be quite similar to one of your fill in the gaps types okay. tasks. Yep. So I've got all these angle radius, diameter, circumference, arc length, circle area, sector area for them to for them to do. Um, but it was just a kind of chaos of no one knowing what to do. But much worse was they weren't all kicking off about it. So I had right. to do something. I was just going gradually round to people and just dawning on me that it was just like no one was really getting it and they were struggling. Um, and then, you know, the inspector left after their 20 minutes. Um, and they did kick off a bit more and they struggled on. And it, But at the end, it just felt like hideous and like it was too hard and what, what were they struggling what were they struggling on Tom what was the struggle um like they I I guess they felt like it was just like too much to grapple with am I doing yeah. this or am I doing that and um, right. so it was the opposite of it just being really straightforward um but well I mean maybe I'll say the interesting thing now the next yeah, time I saw them the interesting thing for me was the next time I saw them, um, after feeling like I'd had this terrible lesson, and basically got some feedback from the inspector that I was a, because I'm a glutton for punishment, I was like, oh, I'd love to learn. Uh, <laughs> I'd been it, and he thought it was dreadful as well. Um, oh, nice, okay. <laughs> and, but the next time I saw them, they could just do it all. They could just do yeah, it. Kid. Yeah, and... And it just, I, I suppose there were lots of things I might have learned from that lesson, but one thing was it's just really hard to know at the time whether what you're doing is any good. Yes. And sometimes when it looks like messy and untidy, like learning is like that. And when they're having to work really hard, they might actually learn, learn a lot. So. Jeez, well, there's a. I do want to unpack a couple of things about this, Tom, because the, the, this sounds absolutely fascinating here. So, what I, where I thought that was going was, I thought you, your kind of reflection was going to be that you should have assessed prior knowledge better at the start and got all the kind of misconceptions out of the way, and then they could have then been at solid foundations to to build yeah. upon this new idea and so on. But it, but it's not that at all. You so on reflection, you, you would have done that lesson in the exact same way again. Is, is that right knowing what you know now um i've done it yeah i've done it lots of times since in a fairly similar way but i mean i've refined i guess i've refined some of the bits but in fact that wasn't even the interesting thing about the lesson i mean one <laughs> thing one of the things that the inspector said um yeah and i was that what i should have done is go easier i should have used things like halves and quarters and right. they'd get it then um, and I was trying to say, no, that's not how, that's not what I'm doing. I'm going rules first and exceptions later. It's better to, in this sense, it's better to go with the general 
right? Yes. And then look at the particular examples yesterday. But it was very much like that's not what he would have done. So it was yes, bad. Yes, yes. Right. And it I mean it felt pretty bad. But <laughs> like I don't think you can judge whether anything's good by looking at it, which I think when you know, it's vital in my current role. Um but actually that is not the thing that stayed with me in the lesson. <laughs> like sure. none of that. There was a much worse thing which right, traumatizes me. And actually <laughs> I do end up thinking about it quite a lot. Um like we'd been told in no uncertain terms by the head the day before that what they'd really want to see is us differentiating by giving right. different tasks to different people. A classic, yeah. Yep. And I'd basically managed to avoid doing that. It's it's like not the way that I deal with support and challenge. But this time I just went, right, I'm going to toe the party line. I'm going to do that. <laughs> and I haven't done it since. Uh, I didn't do it any time since. Uh, so basically, like I had a few different versions of that filling the gap sheets with different yes. amounts filled in. Um, nice, yeah. Nice. So they're more or less to do and more or less helpful. Um, but I gave one girl, and I won't name her, but I remember her, and I remember her little puppy dog eyes, because I taught her since year seven. They were in year nine, I think. Now. Um, and I gave her the easy sheet, the support sheet, and she just looked up at me and she said, um, why are you giving me the easy one? Don't you think oh, no. I can do it? Oh, no. But this is the most crushing thing ever. Oh, no. I thought you were the one that believed in me. Oh, Tom. Oh. And actually, it's choking me up a little bit now. Right? Me too. I, I'm with you. Wow, that's heartbreaking. I thought you were the one that believed in me. And actually, the first time I said this to my uh, students when we were talking about differentiation, I was like, I actually had like tears welling up in my eyes. Yes. It was hideous. And that's the thing that really stayed with me. Wow. Well, oof. Um, I've, I've got to ask you something about this, Tom, because I'm... Um... I'm thinking a lot about differentiation. Well, again, it's, it's at the forefront of many teachers' minds, and particularly this this idea of visible differentiation. That it's it's much easier to see differentiation if you if you're giving out different work to, to to students. Whereas I now try and think of differentiation in terms of the different experiences students may have within the same piece of work within within the same task. But that's a lot harder for an outside observer to to, to see and appreciate. But um, that kind of visible differentiation that, that you talked about there. I'm interested that what what and obviously it's it's not a kind of nice experience to think about. But what prompted you to give that child the, the easier sheets? Was it was that something you'd observed happening in that moment in that lesson, or was that your uh, perception you know of her? What? I can't remember. Um, it might have been. I did a thing with mini whiteboards at the start, so maybe yes. I'd got looked at it and gone, "All oh, right, they're a bit slower, or they're not yes. getting it." Or whatever. Yes. Um, it might have been from a prior thing. I'd never really done it before. I'd managed to just avoid it, but I just yes. Um, it's, but this is this is the perils of differentiation, though, isn't it? Like it's it's yeah, almost impossible. To, it's almost impossible to get right. Yeah, and 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 as you say, the cost of getting it wrong on both sides is so high. Like if if you give the support sheet to the kid who thinks that you know, as as you've said there, that you don't believe in them, that their aspirations are lower, their confidence has gone. And if you give the so-called extension sheet to somebody who isn't ready for it yet, then that's problematic as well. Like it's an absolute minefield differentiation, Tom, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think you can do things like half a support sheet and half a, a challenge sheet. But I guess the thing that I really learned from that is I'm just never going to... Um, 
make too many judgments beforehand about who should get it. That's the big one. But even, but even is I think it's more than that, Tom. Even doing it in the moment, I think, is problematic as well. Because, like, say you ask whether it's a diagnostic question or any kind of sim, kind of single task to assess whole class understanding. You kids do it on mini whiteboards. The mistake I've made in the past is just because a child gets it wrong, all of a sudden they're on a completely different path to a child who gets it right, and it's very hard for them to get off that yeah. path. Because it's very, in the moment, you can't collect that much value, you know, reliable or large sample of information no. to make those kind of decisions. No. Yeah, I mean, uh, different tasks, I generally don't think is a good idea. I mean, this was support for everyone to do the same task. Yes, um, yes, yes. And, you know, I've seen lessons. I, I watched a lesson. I, I can't remember whether it was last year or, or the year before, but they had... Um, they had to do three or four. The school policy was to do three or four different levels of differentiation. So you know, like red, amber, green, or bronze, oh, silver, yes. gold. Yeah, red, exactly. amber, green, blue. Red, amber, green, blue, <laughs> purple, uh, platinum. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of. But they had to do that for every part of the lesson. Wow. So. I think they had 15 worksheets, oh 15 separate worksheets for the for the lesson that I was watching. And I mean, guess, so they've been away creating or finding this thing. And I think one of the things that beginners do uh, and waste so much time doing is resourcing lessons. Yes. But the thing with this was no one was even doing these questions right? because you've got all these different levels. No one's even getting the purple sheet or, or no one was doing the red starter sheet or whatever. Yes. There's just so much of it. Um, and I think, yeah, there's all sorts of, all sorts of potential issues. I think it actually creates the gaps that people are trying to avoid. Some people never get to the hard stuff. Yes. So many problems. And do you still see this now with your beginner teachers? Is, is that still like their default when they hear that differentiation is so important to think of it in terms of differentiation by different tasks? Because it, it's logical, isn't it? Yeah, who says it's important? Oh. Well, okay. Well, let's just say again, it's logical that it is right that that kids grip things at different different speeds, and kids have different levels of prior knowledge and so on. So therefore, it makes sense on the surface that not everybody should be doing the same work. I, I guess that would be that would be the argument for it, right? Yeah, I mean, but for for kind of years, like in the research literature, people have been saying that the kind of assumption that differentiation is an essential feature of good practice has just been taken for granted. But it's just not necessarily. Um, I think there are there are loads of things that you can be doing that are better. Um, it seems mad to get beginners to be thinking about doing that because it relies on kind of what you mentioned about really good high quality assessment. Um, yes which they can't do because, you know, if you're two weeks into your first placement a week ago, you'd never heard of assessment, let yes. alone it being something that you'd have to think about. And you thought differentiation was something you did with polynomials and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 
I, I want to ask you one more thing just about that lesson, Tom. She mentioned yeah. something really, really interesting there. And that's that um, idea that you made a conscious decision not to start off with the relatively straightforward kind of exception examples yeah. of how you would calculate a settlement. So, for example, my, my default in the past would have been if I'm introducing how to work out arc length, we'll start with a semicircle and say, right, you know how to work out the circumference. What do you think you need to do to work out this arc length? Then we'll spice it up a bit and do a quarter of a circle and then we'll try and jump from that to the kind of general case but you, you talked about how you made a conscious decision not to do that can you just talk a little bit more about that yeah so i think i guess i have a, a rule of thumb around whenever you're teaching things particularly things that are new um to start with rules first and then deal with exceptions later um and I guess that's, yeah, that's that's the main way that I think about it. So, you know, if you're a primary teacher and you're teaching, um, like, how to say numbers, like, one of the things that's brilliant about our number system, for example, is I could give you a 10-digit number, and I bet you've never said it before, and you would be able to say it. Yeah, that's right? nice. Because we've got all this lovely structure. But the structure is really problematic from 10 to 20. <laughs> yeah. All right. So if you're working on, say you've got one to nine, it makes sense to do things like go, now we're going to learn the word 100 and we'll do 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 and so on. And then combine the ones that we've got like 101, 105, 907. Yes. Um, and then and deal with the exceptions later in fact pedagogically if i'm doing some place value stuff say in year seven i would teach people uh using like language that's more transparent like uh 1t5 instead of 15 because so many problems with that and actually i don't know if you saw last week it was this was on the bbc they wales has got welsh is much more transparent Yes, I didn't see this, but I'd heard this before. Yes. Yeah. So the the, the number system, so like in in uh, in other countries, they have this kind of more transparent number system, and people are, are better at um, arithmetic uh, estimation, things like that. Um, and they did a study. Actually, it was someone from Loughborough done this study. Um, where they showed that because the curriculum is pretty similar if you're in Wales, but some people learn it in Welsh and some people learn it in English. And yes, they are better at like placing a number on the number line because they're not having to inhibit the the four in the 14 and things like that. Wow. So, that yeah, so, I mean, does that so that's the kind of thing about the rules first and the exceptions later. But I think that's true in all sorts of things. Like if you're adding fractions, say it is, um, it's tempting to go to start off with finding the lowest common multiple to get a common denominator. Yes. Um, but you might go. I might be also tempted to go. I'm going to start just by multiplying the denominators, right, and then. Because that will always work. Mm. And then, a t and again, it's that slight tweak of a task. Like the task could be, as you're doing these questions, this practice, this fluency stuff, can you find a quicker way of doing this? And they could work on going, oh, I don't necessarily need to multiply them. Because sometimes if I've got, uh, I don't know, 
eight and sixteen. I don't want to multiply those. I could just have sixteen for both. Um, yes. Well, can, can I ask you on that topic? I had a conversation um, yesterday, in fact, about dividing fractions, and I don't know whether whether this is the same thing you're talking about, but I just wanted to get your your instant take on this. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, the way that I've always introduced dividing fractions is to start with a an example that the kids can can kind of make concrete so whether i start with kind of two divided by a half and start talking about you've got two liters and you want to share it between you know half liter cups or whatever bottles how many will it fill up and so on and then i can go from that to let's say i don't know um a half divided by a quarter again i can kind of conceptualize that and make it a bit more concrete and so on but then i've always struggled then with the leap to if we get something like kind of three sevenths divided by two thirds then it's like and what i'm hoping is that in those cases that they can kind of conceptualize i can then kind of sell them on the dream that all they need to do is flip over the second fraction and multiply because it works for those cases and then kind of just cross my fingers and hope that they then believe me that that rule is going to hold true for up for all these fractions that are a lot more these these calculations are a lot more difficult to conceptualize now is is that is is that a similar thing where i'm actually starting with the kind of exceptions in the sense that they come out nice and kids can picture them where i should be starting with the 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 more general and then kind of treating those as special cases or is that a different thing well possibly i mean i think it, it again I, i'd be asking you well, what are your purposes there because I, I think the answer is always it depends and and then it, and for me the thing it depends on are, are what are your purposes like if you want them to quickly be able to do this um you know dividing fractions is one where i think i've heard fairly convincing arguments from people that i've been working with that say well i think it's better to just um have this procedure and then we'll think about why it works later yes right? um but equally i've thought i've had the other side where i want to build it up conceptually like but it's the sort of thing that i think we ought to be having conversations about mm-hmm. and the kind of thing that i imagined that teachers had already worked out when i started teaching <laughs> and if you're a beginning teacher in japan they have totally worked this out right so they and it's not necessarily that this is the best thing but they've all agreed what they're going to do and actually even down to the level of um, which fractions they're going to use for that yeah it's incredible isn't it and it's the way it should be though right because again it's not as if this dividing fractions is suddenly a new thing that's appeared on the horizon you know a year ago this has been around for centuries or whatever so there should be an agree well not as you say not necessarily an agreed way that's the best way but a consistency and it, it, it seems ridiculous that there's that there is this choice well I, I don't know if it's ridiculous but I, I totally agree that i think i mean one thing that i've really i guess changed my mind don over the last sort of uh, 15 years or also it's about how much choice teachers ought to have and then like that we don't help new teachers enough and that maybe you want people to be able to think about the the alternatives that are available but we ought to give them a better starting point as in as in restrict the choice for the less experienced teachers that that's what you've changed your mind to is that right well i've throughout my whole teaching career i've really enjoyed my autonomy yes right um 
but I don't think that ne- everyone necessarily needs or wants that. Uh, and I think certain things, certainly when I started, would have been easier. Um, and as like the things that I get, the things that I would get my mentors to do and my students to do now is have a think about how they would teach it, and then ask the mentor. And then they either so they've got a place to start from where they've got an option of you can do this or something else. And if they've got loads of time on their hands to think about this, they can go away and research different ways and approaches because that really helps their subject knowledge. So it is useful to do that. Um, But they can just do that. They've got a good starting point as opposed to the alternative, which is just research it yourself. So you go to the 700,000 worksheets and you go, (laughs) which one shall I pick? I mean, it's very difficult for them. I think when we do some tasks where we give them, say, five different approaches to teaching a topic, um, and there's some duds in there, and a lot of people go for the ones which I think are absolute duds. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, what, 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 are the, what are the kind of features of, of, of the duds? What, what's luring them in there? Do you get a sense of that? Okay, so one I'm thinking about doing, um, thinking about planning at the moment, is there's different approaches to teaching Pythagoras. Okay. And there's one where essentially there's a worksheet of, and some well-meaning person has put this on Tez and it might have been useful for them depending on their purposes. But essentially, it better, what not, be one of my, it better not be one of mine here. Too. Sorry. This could be a, this could be a <laughs> point. Um, so, but basically there's some triangles and you have to measure the sides yep. with your ruler. And then you put it into a table, A, B, C, A squared, B squared, C squared. Yes. Okay. Yep. Right. And you have to notice something. Nice. Okay. Yep. Yep. It's not nice, is it? Because you're going to get <laughs> that measurement problem. Now, but I can think of a situation where I might use that. Right. I can think of a situation where my purpose, if my purpose was to practice accurate measuring. Yes. Right, yes. Yes. I, I could. I mean, I could think of better tasks, but I, I might use that. Con- but on the scheme of work, it says Pythagoras. Yes. I can imagine that as a context where I might go, right, what they really need is measuring. Yes. Right, uh, but I'm going to do it through that. And um, it's, it's a similar thing with the, um, uh, well, I, I'm assuming it's a similar thing with the, the kind of circle theorems. The way I used to introduce that was get the kids to, to construct these these circle theorems and then measure them with a protractor. But the kids couldn't measure with a protractor. So they were either not discovering things or discovering completely the, the wrong thing. That I, yeah. I had one kid who said, who was absolutely convinced that the angle at the centre was triple the angle at the circumference. And he had that in his head. That's what he was take, taking away. I was like, oh God, this is backfired. Whereas once the circle theorems have, have been established, it's a really nice way to kind of interweave in measurement into that because the kids know the results. So now can they check? it by using their you know skills of measuring is it measuring angles is it a similar thing that you're talking about there it's the task itself isn't perfect but it could be used in a more effective way if the ordering's just shifted around a bit. well it's just depending on the teacher's purpose yes, if, but if yes. we think it's if, if you think that's a uh, like an amazing way into finding finding this formula i think it isn't <laughs> right but yes, if you yes. think it's a context of practice measurement maybe it is i mean i think there are better ones but... well what was um, just just out of interest on because I, I well there's, there's two questions that i know listeners will be screaming out now based on what you've said so um i've got to ask these two before i forget them 
I'll ask this one about Pythagoras now, and then if I forget this, Tom, I need to ask you something about Japanese and fractions. I need to come back to that. So, my Pythagoras one I wanted to ask you was, um, what would be, what was the kind of good good task or an example of a good task that was amidst this selection? Um, well, I don't think that you necessarily get good tasks. Maybe I've given the impression that I do, but I think there are some that have more affordances and okay. are more likely to lead to outcomes. It's that thing of it ain't what you do. It's the yes. way that you do it kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, I think there are better ways to meet Pythagoras. So, I mean, I don't have this to hand, but off the top of my head, because um, I haven't actually done it yet. I'm about, I mean, I've done it in the past, but um, there's, I mean, maybe you just tell them a formula. Right? Maybe you just teach all the, maybe you just teach, work out what you think the subskills are and teach all the little bits of it and then build it up um, like that. Maybe you do something where you're trying to work more on the, the, the underlying concept. So often my students think that Pythagoras is about lengths um, because that's the impression they've got from school. Um, so if I want them to think it's about areas, I might do a different task, but really I want people to think it's both. Um, so you could do a thing like um, um, a task that I do is give them squares of different areas, squares of area, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Um, and then you have to put them together, join three, join three together to make a triangle and then categorize the triangles. Okay, well, that's nice. Yes, I like. You don't have the measurement error issue there. That's nice. Well, I mean, you do a bit because they. When I do that with my, I mean, I, I'll have to do this with them before this podcast goes out now. But one of the things that they do right is they get the one that's got a three on it, and they get the yeah. one that's got a four on it, and they get the yeah. one that's got a five on it, and yeah. they put them together and go, "That's a right angle triangle," and it's okay. definitely not right because they know some stuff about. Pythagoras which is kind of getting in the way there because these are the areas of the squares the numbers um, oh, not the lengths I'm sorry yes I, I was I was worried for a second there but yeah I'm with you yes, yeah because course. I want to make because if you want them to notice the relationship between the areas it's kind of it's not that noticeable if I have to square this and it seems like yes, why am I doing yes, this random yes. stuff but if it's yes. if I put the um the four and the five together and they make the nine it, the four five and nine make a right angle triangle yes right? okay i'm with you yes that's a more noticeable relationship but also you get the other bits of pythagoras like if i have the the three um three five and nine right that's not a right angle triangle but it's going to be a particular type of right angle triangle um, it's going to be a particular type. Yes. It's going to be acute angled or obtuse angled. So you yes. know something about when they are, you know more than just knowing the special kind of boundary of when they're the same. Right? We want the whole picture. Um, and then there are various other, various other different uh, like approaches to that. Wow. 
Wow. Right, Tom, before I forget, the second thing that you've mentioned there that I wanted to talk about, and again, you might not have an answer for this, but you, you've dropped another big teaser, and that is you said that in Japan, when they talk about dividing fractions, they've essentially worked out a way to do it. Um, do you know off the top of your head, well, what is that way? What is what is the order that they choose to do it? What's the, uh, yeah, what, what's the kind of rationale? Well, there's a couple of things with the fraction stuff. Like one of them is they always have fractions of something. So it's always units. They always have units. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so that's one part. But like with the dividing fractions, um, I've got a picture that I think I took at um, a conference that Jeff Wake organised. I mean, really should get Jeff to oh, talk about this. Yeah, stuff. he'll be on, he'll be on. Um, if, he, if, he ever, if he's listening, if he ever replies to my invite. So just one, <laughs> one for you there, Jeff. Yeah, because he's like they're really with Colin actually. He's just looking at this kind of curriculum design in a much more their curriculum design is much more thought out um, and agreeable and not politicised in the same way it is here. Um, but essentially, the dividing fractions. I've got a photo somewhere which I could send you, which is what all the six textbooks have as the first time they divide fractions. Oh, that'd be amazing. And I. I mean, I can't remember if I'm definitely right off the top of my head, but I think it's two-fifths divided by three-quarters is the one that they all go wow. for. Wow. So six completely, six different textbooks from different publishers, and yet they've kind of converged on this. this it's, it's something like four or five of them will have wow. that as their opener. And in the, the talk that we saw, the guy um, talked about, they tried to change like one of the fractions to something like two-fifteenths. Right. And they they talked about the trials of this, where um, they could uh, approach it in different ways, and they got more stuff. But they end up keeping it, right? Because there were some people that didn't completely get it, and even though there were all this extra stuff that was nice, when they used this one, everyone got it. Wow! Um, and that's kind of a level, like if if textbooks were that well thought out here, right? Um, you could be giving that to your new teachers all yes. the time and saying, right, now think about how you do this with your class. Think about what your class need. Um, and do the, do the textbooks, so once you've established that example, because obviously the choice of example is absolutely critical, is there then kind of suggested steps for what you'd say um, and the kind of different approaches? Is it that prescriptive? Um, well, I don't speak Japanese, but <laughs> I think there's quite a lot of there's quite a lot of guidance. But then that's where all the lesson study and yes. everything comes into working on. And they're very good at, at picking a very small aspect of their teaching, which they're going to develop through the lesson study and stuff. And that's that's the way they do their CPD. And it's well funded. They're they're committed to it. Everyone has to do it. You have to do it in all your subjects. Uh, if you're a primary teacher, you have to do it in all the things that you're teaching. And all. Wow. And, and last, last question, I promise, on this, Tom. You, do you get a sense of, like, I know obviously you, you, you don't speak Japanese, but, but where it goes from that initial example, but are, they, are they going for kind of, like, trying to make it concrete? Are they going for a, an analogy? Are they diving straight into to the rule for doing it? Where, where, where does that example lead to? Well, they're going for understanding alongside, they're going for conceptual understanding alongside fluency as well. There's um, Actually, if people are interested in this, in the MA journal, 
I think it was the last one. There, there was a good article about these things. Uh, I think it was the first article in the last journal, which you could maybe link to if people are members, um, that Colin and Jeff wrote about this this whole thing. Um, and uh, and they've got the fraction example, and there's some about area of compound shapes, and I can't remember what the other, what the other one. But like you can see how it develops and like why it's why they're doing it the way they're doing it and the rationale for that. Wow. So it's pretty interesting. That is, uh, yeah, absolutely fascinating. And as I say, hopefully Jeff will be on to talk all things Japanese in the near future, fingers crossed. Right, so this is breaking news for the listeners here. So we, we've, we've had a, and I'll tell you what, Tom, this has only happened, I think, t- three times in the over 100 episodes I've done this. So it happened with Chris Bolton, with Naveen Rizvi and Gemma Sherwood. And that is, we plan to do one episode and then midway through, it's become very apparent that we're getting absolutely nowhere near the end. So I've got to... Sorry, I'm quite glad. <laughs> I'm, I'm taking definitely full responsibility uh, for this um the um i've got to hook you in for a, at least one return appearance and uh, potentially uh, two return appearances because just to tease teachers these are the some of the things that we're not going to get a chance to speak to um uh, speak about today so the whole mixed attainment thing building on the interview with helen hindle and um, tom's got some thoughts on that he's already mentioned the fact that he in, in brought in a uh, mixed attainment teaching into his school when he was heads of de- head of department so we're going to talk about all the pros and cons and questions that I've got about that because listeners will know I am completely out of my depth with that. That Helen Hindle interview, I didn't have a clue what was what was going on there. So I've got some big questions for him, Tom. He's got to sell me on the dream of this. Um, and then, well, just listen to, you should listen back to Helen's uh, and before we talk about it. Yes. She's basically answered everything. Um, well, okay. Well, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll see about that. So <laughs> a bit of homework for listeners to do there as well. Um, and then feeding into that, I want to talk about running a department because that's one of the most requested things we get asked to speak about. So obviously, Tom has experienced being a head of maths and I know we have lots of head of departments and also aspiring heads of department to listen to so we're going to get into the whole cultural aspect and and and, and the organizational side of, of that so that'll be fascinating and then and again my instincts may be that this may be a separate podcast altogether we've got to talk about practicing mathematics which is the subject of one of my favorite books of all time Tom and Dave Hewitt's uh, public publication for the ATM which I've been banging on about for the last couple of years now and Tom has picked out some tasks that we're going to do live and um, in the same spirit that I did with with Johnny Griffiths we're going to do some of these tasks live and Tom again is going to kind of tell me why he, why he thinks they're important and why this is a good way to be practicing mathematics so that's all coming up um, in the future Tom can I lock well, you in now verbal agreement you're back on the show uh, okay <laughs> though I am about to have a, a second child so I will be in a day. So. <laughs> <laughs> that'll make two of us, so that'll be great. That could be a very interesting uh, interesting conversation. Well, that's fantastic. I can't wait for that. So what we're going to do instead, and the reason we made this decision, listeners, is because I don't want to skirt over these massive issues. Um, what we do on this show is we go deep into things. So, um, yeah, we'll, what we're going to do instead is we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna talk about one more big issue today. Um, Tom's going to do his big three, and then we'll be back with those big issues in the near future. So what we want to talk about now, Tom, and, and we've, we've, you've kind of 
of alluded to this and it's been a, a theme throughout and that's this this notion of working with beginners or novice teachers which is something you do on a, on a day-to-day basis now um, my first question is a bit of an open-ended one take it however you want but where do novice teachers struggle what, what, what are some of the difficulties they find my instinct is it would be concerning planning lessons is that the number one or are there, are there other areas that, uh, that that cause problems well I mean, it's a big question. I guess everything's hard when you're a beginner. Um, but teaching in particular is just this hugely complex thing. Um, and one of the things that's tricky when you start is you're just not aware of the complexities. Um, so so things, things that they didn't know existed become things that they have to think about. And that's quite tricky so i guess a key bit of work at the start is about helping them to become aware of some of the complexities and give them a kind of framework to think about it so some of those uh, issues around their own beliefs about learners and learning what teaching is what maths is um i mentioned earlier the thing about subject knowledge they don't have like they have the subject knowledge of a maths degree maybe but that's not the same as the that's not the maths they're teaching um i guess with that one of the key things is they take things for granted so consequently it's really difficult to unpick the maths that they want to teach what do you what kind of things would they take for granted everything (laughs) as in as in kind of the knowledge of the students they teach or is it is it it more their own knowledge mainly Oh, really? I, I think that's ma- so it's mainly about your own knowledge. Um, so I watched uh, the last lesson I watched uh, yesterday or the day before was um, they were doing a thing about drawing graphs. And like w- one of the things they had to do was they had a, an equation, y equals mx plus c type. Yep. And when, it, I mean, we've got problems with graphs, haven't we? Because we always think of, um, every time I see someone teaching graphs, straight line graphs, they're teaching y equals mx plus c. Yes. So like this small subset of straight line graphs. And yes, yes, um, yes. you can see why people do it, blah, blah, blah. Um, but they're teaching that anyway. But the kids had to draw their own axes oh right? that's okay yeah alarm bells going off here yep. so that's quite involved isn't it it's quite yes. there's quite a lot of work i mean getting the scale right getting it to start in the same point and like that was a, just a sort of thing in fact it wasn't a disaster in this lesson at all it wasn't really a problem but i've seen lots of lessons where it's like that becomes the whole focus and yes. then they haven't planned anything about that Right, because their attention's on what's the main thing I've got to teach and what yes. I said earlier about yes. covering it. They've got to get. I hear lots of people saying, we've got to get through this because we need to move on and blah, blah, yes. blah. But So they're kind of, they're trying to work. So one of the things that they have to do that I think is helpful, though difficult, is whenever they do some maths, they have to do, they have to develop like the inner watcher. Um, All right, okay. So whenever you're doing some maths, part of you should be doing it. But then there's a second part of you that is watching, looking on and going, what am I taking for granted here? Like, what would this be like if they didn't already know how to do it? And it's very difficult to do that. But kind of like watching yourself at work is how you unpick some of your expertise, their mathematical expertise. Yes. Um, And it's very tricky. 
but like loads of things that you do you do automatically and yep. part of the thing about being an expert at, at anything is that you can do it without thinking about it right um and you know you sort of think of often this like these four stages like you don't know what to do and you can't do it obviously but then you know what to do but you can't do it <laughs> and then you know what to do and you can do it but you have to think about it in that sort of third stage and then you know what to do and you can do it and you can do it without thinking about it yes. so like if it's driving a car i can do it while having a conversation and yes. all that sort of stuff. but for a teacher if I'm working with someone else's awarenesses, you have to be trying to get back to that third stage where I'm actually trying to unpick what I'm doing. Um, and this is, and this is difficult. Um, that's why it's difficult when you first start teaching to go, well, why aren't they getting this? Yeah, absolutely. I think, but it's also at the, the other level where it's difficult is if you're the co-teacher who's working with trying to support, um, a new teacher or any teacher, in fact, is you're probably okay at doing that for maths, but you're not necessarily good at doing that for your own teaching. So you, it, it's hard to unpick your own teaching in a way that's helpful for the students. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's this hugely complicated thing that we're getting people to do. Um, and can, can I ask just just on that, Tom, um, and this, this one thing I've, I've thought about for a long time, you often hear anecdotes about this, but I'm interested in, in your take. Um, is, is there any relationship between how good a mathematician one of your novice teachers is versus how good a teacher either they'll become or they are in these initial stages? And the reason I ask is often I hear of teachers who struggled kind of mathematically, they weren't, for want of a better phrase, natural mathematicians themselves as students, they often find it easier to anticipate the struggles kids would have because they're they're similar to the struggles that they have themselves versus somebody who always found maths easy perhaps they find it more difficult to, to put themselves in the mind of students and do, do, you, do you ever see that or is it is 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 it not as close a relationship are there other more important factors uh my experience is that there are other more important factors um yeah i, I guess my experience is we work with about half of our course my yeah, about half of my course is people who have a maths degree and about half of it is people who've done a one year subject knowledge enhancement course. So they've got like maybe a psychology degree and then they spend a year on maths. And ours is, I guess, different to, to some SKA courses in that you already have to have A-level maths to do it. So we're trying to give them horizon content knowledge of stuff where this is going. So if you're teaching FP3, um, you know what that's going on to. But then you also have, um, we also do some work about like stuff that's in the curriculum, GCSE and A level. Um, uh, the reason that they're very different when they start in some ways is they've spent a year thinking about maths from the perspective of having to teach it, right. which is very different to thinking of it from the perspective of having to do an exam in it and you know i crammed a lot for my exams because i thought that was the way and that's relatively successful like i wasn't getting brilliant results but i wasn't failing those exams i can't necessarily remember any of that stuff now <laughs> um, i mean we could go down that whole <laughs> that whole road but actually people have already talked about that haven't they so yes 
I want, I'll tell you what I, I want to ask you, Tom. And again, the, 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 there's, there's massive questions surrounding this, and I'm, I'm going to get to the big question in a second. Which well, I haven't is... answered the question about planning. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, well, you, have you got more to say on that now before I chuck another another one into the mix? Well, the, I mean, I think you asked about planning, and the thing. Um, Planning is hard. One of the things they find hard is yeah. sometimes they think um, that the point of planning is to fill in the plan. Yeah. Or, yes, or yes. they see that process of planning or preparation, I sometimes think of it, um, as producing something like yeah. filling in a plan yeah. or producing a PowerPoint or then completing a re- reflection so they've got a nice full, um, a full folder. Um, and that's kind of the wrong thing, the wrong way to think about planning. I think it's more about the process. And like, I like to think of lesson preparation because it's partly about preparing yourself to teach is a big thing. So imagining what it's actually going to be like to do this stuff with your class in front of you. Um, but it's not about producing the plan because the, the plan you only plan the lesson, I think, so you can reflect on the lesson. That's the main thing. A small part of the purpose is so you can teach the lesson for the students, for the pupils. But the main thing is what you learn from it that affects the thousands of lessons that you'll teach in the future. It's been the key thing. Do you? It's, it's really interesting. This. I had a similar conversation with with Emma McRae that'll yeah. be out. That'll be out by the time um, uh, this this conversation comes out, so listeners can check this out. And obviously, Emma um, works with with uh, novice teachers as well. And I asked her about the, the the purpose of of kind of lesson planning templates and whether again they're useful or completely useless and whether there is a way to make them more useful than they are because I, when i work with with um novice teachers um or nqts or, or you know whatever stage they're at and they have to fill in these lesson plans it's just it's just a means to an end it's an admin task it doesn't seem to inf- inform their planning it doesn't seem to play the part of any reflection i, I it just it's just something that they do exactly as you said yeah, stop doing it <laughs> but are there because obviously this goes back to something we spoke about earlier this notion of kind of make making it visible so the problem with with some of the forms of differentiation that i think are more effective are they're actually invisible to the the kind of outside observer and we know that sometimes we've just got to play the game that you know schools need evidence and whatever so are there ways are, are there kind of lesson pro formers or templates that, that you you've seen that are, are more effective that, that aren't just a, a, a mere box ticking or, or box filling in task um well i think so because i think what what we get them to do is better than that um and i think a kind of rule of thumb and this goes for anyone who's planning um and writing something down is i write down things that i might want to reflect on you know and that's not quite true at the start because they have to write down everything um, at the start. Uh, so I suppose our, our main thing, the main bulk of the lesson is has three headings. The, the times and the timings, what the pupils will be doing and what the teacher will be doing. That's the main thing for the lesson. But I mean, there's a there's kind of a lot more to the process. It depends how much detail you want. Um, and are you 
as part of that because obviously it's it's this reflective nature is is, is for, for me is the, the kind of key to to developing as a teacher you, you have this idea of what you're going to do with the lesson you then do the lesson and then it's 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 taking that time to think what worked what didn't work what am I going to change next time and so on um, is 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 that part of this process is, is that something does is that getting written down there and is that something that your trainee teachers do naturally uh, I don't think anyone does that naturally. Is well, it, do you agree? Do you agree it's important? Yeah. So I mean, maybe if I could talk, maybe if I talk, try and talk quickly through what I would see as what we have as our whole kind of oh, planning. Oh, definitely. Take your time, definitely. Um, and then you could ask for more. We could get more details on uh, any bits. Sure, sure. So I guess first off. I mean, they don't know anything about it at the start. That's what you have to remember. It's really hard. Um, um, so we talk a bit about the purposes of planning, kind of um, long-term purposes. But the key thing, the key thing is it's the key process, planning lessons and reflecting on them, is how you develop as a teacher. Um, I can't remember who said this, but, like, you know, some teachers have... 10 years of experience some teachers have one year of experience 10 times yeah, and i think nice. the reflection stuff is the key the key difference of if you actually think about your practice you might be in a good position to get better um so yeah we, we our kind of processes they start off with a topic overview so if you're teaching a topic and I mean, it's kind of trite to say, isn't it? The the lesson is the wrong unit and all of that kind of jazz. Um, but I also, in some ways, the the unit is the wrong unit or the, the oh topic God, is Sam, the wrong don't unit. Be say, don't be saying this. Like, it's a Japanese thing, isn't it? Like they've got a well thought out curriculum that goes all the way through, like how the number line develops all the way through, how it's used and taken away and then all of that stuff. Um, but if you're a beginner, lesson is the right unit. Right. That is a because that's a unit they can cope with. Um, but in terms of planning, the first thing they do is think about a topic. Um, we've got a particular way of doing that where they use a splurge diagram. So that is from um, Prestige and Perks, Adapting and Extending. What's a splurge um, diagram? So it's basically, I give you a topic like percentages or something and I give you a couple of minutes and you write percentages in the middle of your page and you write down everything that you think of that's related to percentages okay and then you put in all the connections between those things right okay yeah right um, and you might real you might restructure it you might think about some things about what's kind of previous things that I need for this what images or representations are helpful for teaching this? You might think about where this is going, like the horizon content knowledge. Like, so you don't want to do things now that might hamstring them later, that kind of stuff. You try and get all of that down um, as quickly as possible. And if you're, when they're new, they can't think of, they can't necessarily think of loads for that. Um, but at that point, you could then look in a textbook or. Um, your school scheme of work and go, oh, percentages, I didn't even think about increase and decrease or, or sales or something like that. Um, and that's really vital because it's about how you learn about what your subject knowledge is like, yes. right? where you've got gaps, which 
which they need. Oh, here's these things I didn't think of. And then here's things I don't even know what they are, which is perfectly normal when you're yes. a beginner. Yes. Um, but then you use that document for kind of medium term planning, right? Because you look at your splurge diagram and you go, right, I think where I, what seems a sensible place to start is this thing, right? And then I'll do this and then I'll do that. But actually, if I'm going to do that, I need to have done this and this first. So, so you work out roughly what the order is mm -hmm. through that topic and you go, right, I've got five lessons. This is, the key idea that's going to be in each of these lessons. And then one, when you've got that key idea for each lesson, then that's what how you do kind of like a lesson overview. Um, you know the main point that you're trying to get across in that lesson or what, what, the, what the thing you're trying to work on is. Um, and then that's the point where you work out, so what happens in this individual lesson? It's interesting that, that so still going back to the lesson being a a kind of valuable unit of time to think about is is that just kind of in terms of practicality purposes of yeah. of getting resources printed and all all that kind of thing that it makes sense to think still in terms of lessons and the reason I ask Tom is that again not to give him another plug but Mark McCourt is is I don't want to put words in his mouth but very of the the mindset that you know lessons just roll into one that one lesson picks up exactly where the previous lessons finished and it's not like we'll teach this one idea in this lesson and this one idea in in another what, what, what's your take on that yeah I mean that's how I teach when I'm teaching maths mm. uh, but I don't know if that's how I how I don't know if that's the most helpful way to learn to teach because oh, it seems a bit difficult yes. and like I'm saying this about the medium term plan thing you know at the start when they first start doing it we do do that from the start with the trying to do a medium term plan but on our medium term plan sheet right that half of it is stuff that comes up that you weren't expecting right and it's a bit like the kind of uh, like a, a kind of a test effect like you have to write down what you think is going to happen and commit to it so when a different thing happens that you have more of a chance to learn from that about oh all this other stuff came up about negatives or all this other stuff came up that I hadn't thought about with the axes and yes. that, so actually I need to do a lesson on axes or is that worth it all of that um, so they're not very good at that but they do practice it but you have to think in terms of the the individual lesson then um, because that's the thing that you can plan and you have to deal with in the moment mm, like yes. you don't have to deal with a fifth lesson the complexity of the fifth lesson when you're in the first lesson because things might change yes but you're learning a bit about that kind of process um and then basically so when it comes to the lesson we have that kind of thing where they have well ours has two parts we're pretty strict on this it's kind of a tight but loose structure so we have a lesson overview sheet which is basically a summary of the main tasks, any particular aspects of classroom culture that you're working on, and the key maths focus. So the maths underpinning the objectives, um, and also any uh, prior knowledge or practicing that you're doing. Um, but kind of from from that overview, an experienced teacher could could teach the lesson from just that information. So it might be what you write in your teacher planner. I see. 
But if you're new, that's not enough. <laughs> right. So um, we have a lesson outline, um, which a lesson flow, which is everything that's happening all throughout the lesson. And we get them to kind of script out what they're going to say. That's interesting. Um, and I guess the, yeah, I mean, I'm quite interested in practice. We probably won't talk about it today. But I think you have to, you know, your first explanation that you give may, it may not be that good. And the first time you give that explanation probably shouldn't be in front of a class that you don't know very well when you yes. don't know loads about teaching <laughs> and you can't wing it. So part of the process of lesson preparation is actually thinking about your actual class and running through the explanation and and refining it with someone else. Mm. So we tend to, where possible, we've got relatively quite a big course, um, but we send them in pairs to schools so that they can practice these bits that they're scripting out. Um, and I think it seems like, it probably sounds like quite a lot to script out an entire lesson. Um, but if you just script out the bit that where you're talking to the whole group as one, um, then actually that's not that's not too much. But if you're giving them something to think about, the words that you use as a teacher are, are you're trying to give the students you're teaching, the pupils, a, mo a model to help support and structure mm. their thinking about this. So that's that model should work for all of your examples. So a big thing that we think all the time is um, that one example is not enough. And nearly every lesson I watch, I think there's not enough examples here. And I use that kind of broadly to mean either um, examples that the teacher talks about or the students talk about uh, as both of those. Like if you're answering the question, that's still an example of different types of things that are similar to that oh but you're you're um distinguishing that between kids practicing through things the, the, there's not enough examples preceding the practice is that right yeah so um i guess there's a few different ways of thinking about that but like the whole class kind of stuff there's often not enough examples before they go on to independent practice and i guess often people miss out the middle bit where you have like more guided practice if, if you're doing that kind of thing though i think it is sensible to do that kind of thing if you're relatively new to teaching it feels like a yeah like a more a more or something they're more in control over that kind of thing and it's what they used to seeing i guess as well um, I'll, tell, I'll tell you what's interesting well lots of things interesting that you've you said once again tom but the um the rehearsing the, the scripting and the rehearsing um again like thinking about this now it seems so obvious that that's such a useful thing to do but i i don't know about you did well again you, you've you've had a slightly different experience to me in terms of terms of training but i never did that that was that was never and I, I never even thought that that was a sensible thing to do because and again whether this is curse of knowledge but i thought well of course i can explain what perimeter is because perimeter is so, such an obvious thing but it's obvious to me because i've been yeah. math and i've thought about it for years but that's why yeah those explanations don't often hit home because the first time you're verbalizing them is is in front of a class and um, it's, it's it's interesting it's it's a big part of it is it this this kind of scripting and rehearsal 
You are, yeah, I think it's pretty important. I mean, the problem if you don't do that is not that it's disastrous. It's that it's okay. Right, yes, yes. You can mostly get away with that. I mean, one of the things that happened for me as a teacher is I thought I was okay um, eventually because, you know, like 29 out of 30 people got it if I taught something. And then I realized later that I should be thinking about the one person. Yes. Um, and that's that's the stuff that matters, um, and and that is and that's one of the things that makes it difficult to learn from teaching experiences, unless you unless you try and control those experiences in some way, um, which I'll maybe try and get onto in a minute, sure. because yeah, this it, it basically works. Like the kids don't yes. kick off, yeah, uh, or if there's a problem, you don't get immediate feedback on it because it was okay. Yeah. Or the kids fill in the gaps because they've already done this before. So in your bad explanation, they fill in the gaps and they get on with the task and they can do the task and maybe the task was a bit too easy. So mm-hmm. they could already do it anyway. And So you just don't learn anything from that experience in a way that you could. Um, so, yeah, I guess we get them to write down or we try to. I mean, I'm, I teach it, but like I don't know if everyone does this all the time because <laughs> You know, the limit on time and whether they see the value. Sometimes they only see the value of things later and stuff like that. Um, But we're really keen that they write down what the pupils are meant to be doing because it's very easy to focus on what the teacher's doing. Mm. Um, And you have to because that's the only thing that you're in control of. It's the only thing you can change. Um, Like, I can only indirectly influence what the pupils are doing but they have to include try and include what the learners will be thinking about the details of the explanations so specifically things like what they'll actually say what the board will look like if they're writing on the board um, the specifics of the examples that they're going to use so you know sometimes uh, well I saw one the other day and I th- it might have been solving an equation or something it was 4x minus 4 um, and it ended up that equals something and end up the answer was four. So like the four did right. three different roles in yes, this. Question. Yes. Um, so the specifics of the example, like what about your example is exemplary? Like how is it giving them a kind of structure? Um, enough examples, if you're going to do more, what would they look like? Um, how are they going to do the examples? So, you know, earlier we talked about the dividing fractions thing. So one thing I might do with dividing fractions is ask lots and lots of questions um, where I maybe get chanting the answers. So like how many halves are there in one? How many quarters are there in one? How many tenths are there in one? How many seventeenths are there in one? And ask a lot of questions of that type. And then I go on to how many questions where I change the one. So mm. the same type of questions, but in two or four, right? So, uh, so you're drawing out like a generality of the mm. questions like that. So if I do that kind of lesson, I'm going to build up to a point where I've asked hundreds and hundreds of questions in a relatively short space of time. So I don't want to include all of them, but I am asking all of them in the same kind of way. And I've maybe got six or seven different types. So I'm building up to how many pnths are there in a over b or something thing. this is fascinating this tom let, let, let me ask you this i know you're a um i know you've listened to, to quite a few episodes of, of, of the podcast 
<laughs> um, I'm in a car a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we had uh, Naveen Rizvi on, um, she yeah. shared she shared um, a, a booklet, and it blew my mind. This booklet, and I know it had a, a, a lot of reaction from from, from teachers, and it was essentially um, a script, a script, a script in terms of uh, for, for teachers to follow in terms of the words that they'd say, the examples they'd choose, the, the, the practice questions that they'd give following these examples and so on. It was the definition of, of kind of prescriptive teaching. And I re- like if, if Naveen had been on the podcast, let's say three years ago, I'd have been thinking, what the hell is this? That would, I, that would have been horrendous for, for me as a teacher. But having kind of been warmed up to it by speaking to the likes of Danny Quinn and Greg Ashman, who in their departments kind of centrally planned lessons um, are like a really big, big part of this. I wasn't as kind of shocked by what Naveen said but that I guess uh, what, what, what I'm getting around to here is where's all the things that you talk about are obviously vitally important for teachers to do but incredibly challenging things for, for, for teachers particularly beginning teachers to be able to do so what's the argument against say you giving them essentially a booklet like Naveen's with a script for let's say you know the the, the first you know 10 lessons they teach or something like that them sitting down to reflect on it having delivered the lesson having gone through the lesson and reflect on what worked what didn't why they think you sequenced it in this way why you included this number of examples (laughs) and then they then build up to being able to do it a bit more independently because it it seems to me like i mean obviously you know far better than me but this this sounds like a really challenging thing for for novice teachers to do yeah i mean the I guess the argument, the key argument against that is we don't necessarily have those materials of a good enough quality that you can just give them out. And that is a shame. But it's, but it's about the way, like if you're in Japan and you're a new teacher or Singapore or China or something like that, um, that is what you do. Yes. As kind of as detailed as Naveen's books would be, would that be right? I mean, I'm not, I don't know enough to to be able to answer sure, that sure. in terms of the data, but um, but it's that you, kind of it's that kind of thing. It's 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 ch- examples. It's the practice questions and kind of prompts that that would yeah. That well, that like if you take something, like, do you know connecting mass concepts, the Engelman stuff? Yes, I do. Yes. Yeah. So, like, I think, well, like with lots of things, I think, um, like that is a really useful resource for teachers. Mm. Right. To see how it's all put together and the order and things. Um, and it's a bit tricky in those because he deliberately mixes around when you're going to meet things. Yes. But if you track like the fraction bit through from when they first meet a fraction to when they're adding fractions, that's a really interesting progression and really good, in my opinion, for kind of like thinking about subject knowledge. It's not the only way. Right. But it's a good place to start from. Yes. But we kind of just don't. Well, and if it exists, I don't know about it, but we just don't have that in the same way as they do in, say, Japan for um, for others, which is why I would suggest to mind that if they're going to do that, that they start with they start with textbooks, because, yes. you know, I don't know if it was similar when you started, but like textbooks were the enemy. Correct. A hundred percent. Worst thing you could do. Correct. And a badge of honor for me was that I didn't really use the textbook. Yeah, correct. And if I did, I would take the questions and do something with them, or I would dip in and take a question here and a question there. Um, 
But you could have textbooks that are really nicely structured mm. and developmental and bring in like interleaving, uh, uh, have spaced out practice. You hardly ever have good mixed exercises. I mean, I might talk about this more when I talk about my research, but you, you just don't really get textbooks that that properly uh, take account of what we know about how to organize the textbook. Mm. Right. Um, yeah, and the, I guess the problem is we just don't really have that. Um, and uh, and even worse than using the textbook would be to start on page one and work through it, page two, page three, page four, when naturally that, if you had a really well thought out uh, textbook, that might be this really sensible way to Absolutely. do it. Um, and I think ultimately what you would want is room, right? It's, it's kind of a useful place to start. And it gives you, but you have room around the edges to do other stuff. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I, one, one quick point about textbooks, and this this isn't uh, necessarily for you to comment on that unless you, unless you want to, Tom, but just, just some um, that were just kind of buzzing through my head. Um, yeah, I 100% agree. Textbooks were the worst thing you could do for about the first five or six years um, I was teaching. Um, I think there was like a, a really good opportunity for, for, for textbooks to have a resurgence. And that was whenever the GCSE spec changed, what, three years ago, four years ago, whatever. Teachers didn't have a bloody clue what was going to be on this new GCSE. There was, there was, there was new concepts be appearing that teachers didn't know what they looked like. And the whole new, te- whole new kind of uh, family of textbooks sprung up, but they've been so rushed and put together that they were crap they were absolutely terrible so departments bought these textbooks thinking this will help but as you say there was no there was no thought put into the well as far as i could see the the sequencing there was no interleaving in there spacing and so on and so forth so you had this kind of new generation of teachers who meet these shiny textbooks for the first time look through them and they're pretty terrible so textbooks are bad again and it's i i don't know what it's going to take we do that all the time right we always rush through yeah. textbooks um, we're always changing the curriculum, <laughs> you know, yes, we're always yes. going all new spec, new textbooks. Yeah. Um, and we have a, like, I don't, I mean, this is nowhere near my area of expertise, but we have like a for profit kind of textbook, um, system. It's not like uh, a government thing or, yes, yes. you know, and it's not printed on really cheap paper. So all schools can easily afford it because yeah, it's not for profit and yeah, all things like that. Yeah. Um, and we have this kind of thing where the curriculum changes frequently. Teachers are really good at adapting to those kind of changes because it happens so often. In Japan, they don't rush into the change. I don't know why I keep talking about Japan. I'm not an expert at that. <laughs> but, you know, it's just it's a totally different environment. Yes. Um, yeah. Can I ask you? And again, this I don't, I don't want to um, kind of stop you from, from from your flow of talking about this. But this is something that fascinates me, Tom. With with all that you've said about new teachers kind of planning lessons and stuff, where, if anywhere, does this um, kind of use of the abundance of, of math resources that are out there on the internet, where, if anywhere, does that come into play um, when you're advising beginning teachers to plan? And I'm just thinking here that obviously we've got TES, which has got, as, as you said, hundreds of thousands of, of resources. Do you say to teachers go near that or avoid that? I, but then you, but then you've also got things like. Have you got um, your test math? Oh no, that? not a hand. Not I'm completely oh, independent. No, completely I say independent. don't go on the test. Okay, that's that's interesting. So, so, um, all right. Well, let, let's come to that first. What? How, how come? Uh, too much choice. 
Right. Too much choice and too little experience in being able to be discerning, but also the time factor. Yes. Like you often it's quicker to think about the kind of maths you want your teachers, uh, kind of maths you want your kids to do and go, I want a question like this and a question like this. And you can handwrite maths very quickly Mm. and handwrite that onto a worksheet or onto the board or yeah or onto a worksheet and photocopy it you can often get closer to the thing that your kids need for the maths that you need them to work on that's interesting so there's, there's that point but also there's just too much variety like if you haven't got any inspiration or you don't know what the thing that you're teaching is the first thing i would suggest is that they look in a textbook because a textbook i mean the, the medium has some problems, like all the information's there too soon and all of that, like all the mathematical structure is there too soon because they have to save paper. They can't gradually add that in and everything. Um, but someone thought about a bit of an explanation and some questions. So they're not a bad place to start. Um, yeah, I mean, I think things like... Um, Oh, I'm trying to think something like your variation website right I don't know what you're going to say at all this could go either way this go on it's quite a good place to start <laughs> if you don't know any questions on something and you want them to practice bits it's quite a good thing to look at I mean I think ultimately the thing that's helpful about that is it gives you an example of the type of thing that you might want that might be worth thinking about for the thing that you're teaching because on the, on the other side is you've thought about the variation right mm. or whoever put the questions up there has thought about what they want to be varying there and that might not be the same thing for the kids that you're teaching because it might not be supporting the particular maths focus yes under your objective right but you need to say, I think you learn things through examples, not kind of descriptions of them. So, yes. so that's a really useful place to start. Like, I mean, say if, if I go on your other website, I could go like the SSS, uh, the SSDD problems. Yes. Right. I really like that as a type of question, but I think ultimately, like the most use that you would get out of it, if you is if you went, what have my class done? right that could be good distractors and what have they just done so like yes if if it's a right angle triangle like there's no point me putting a question about reflecting that right angle triangle in one of the sides if that's something i know i haven't taught oh of course maybe not no point but do you get what i mean like it's it's an example so i guess what i would point them to is a fairly small um a fairly small subset of places which they could go for resources things like um can, can i can i chuck one at you here so what about yeah. what about like don Stewart's median so that that for me is an absolutely brilliant website but does that suffer from too much choice too much variety in tasks like i would argue the quality is 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 there but is is that something you would be guiding your your uh, novice teachers towards I don't think there's too much choice 
for that so i mean i was very lucky when i was an nqt i went on a residential course when we used to have leas yes and, uh, and i met don stewart then and he gave me millions of resources wow. right and it was great right and i've used them since um and i love don i love his tasks there's loads on his website but actually for the specific thing if you use the search thing on the side and you click mm. the thing that you want there aren't too many yes but they're all good enough that it's worth having a look at okay right um so yeah i mean i think that's a that's a place i'd use and and those are a nice mathematical tasks Obviously, everyone should do the task before they yeah. give it out. That's a that's big what, one, right? That's, that's one of the it. things that you should spend a bit of time on. Doing yeah, that's, the a, that's, that's a bit. I mean, I definitely didn't do that enough. And that 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 is a key piece of advice, right, for, for, for any yeah. teacher. And again, with workload issues, sometimes you think a casual glance over a task will be fine. Because, again, it's this curse of knowledge thing. Well, yeah, that looks fine. I'm sure that'll, that'll be it. If there's any problems, I'll figure them out on the day. But you can really come unstuck there, right? Yeah. Though... I think the way they get around the workload issue, I mean, I maybe say this uh, next time, <laughs> but it's by using the same tasks again and again. Yeah. Like I thought when I started teaching that I'd need, it's one of the things about mixed attainment is I thought when I started teaching that, oh, I'm doing um, this topic for this set three year seven, but I did it to set five last year. So I need to do a different yes, thing. Yes. I learned that if you use the same if you get good enough tasks and good enough is good enough good enough tasks that you can that you can use you get better at using them and getting more and more out of them and then when you plan again it's your planning for your class you're yes. planning to use them with your class you're not resourcing the lesson you're not spending your time on that so um and i think yeah it's good to do different things as well sure um but if you're but with time, you can build up like a collection of tasks that are good. Um, it'd be really great if we had a place where we just had these are really good tasks that go all through the curriculum that you have that you could use. This is why they're good. This is where the snags will be. This is yes. uh, how to extend it, how to support it um, as a starting point for people. It's just I find it mad now that we just that we don't have that and we just throw people in and go figure it out. It'll <laughs> be fine. <laughs> um, can I ask just because uh, teachers love this, just on a practical level, Tom? Um, again, I, I'm obsessed with. I've got like some um, complex folder structure where I've got all my different things stored, and I, I can't find my way through it these days. It's, it's very unwieldy. Do, do you um, give any advice to your novice teachers about when they find a good task, what, how they should kind of store it or record it in a way that, that they'll be able to find it again in the future? Is it by topic? Is it is it by year group? What, what what's what's the way? Do you have any any thoughts on good ways of organising uh, good tasks that you find? Um, well, I can say my personal way, yeah, yeah, my go personal for it. preference. Is, my personal preference. What I used to do is I had one big folder, um, and I gave everything really tried to give everything really good titles. All right, okay, yep, yep. Right, and I think that's the most effective thing I've ever done. Oh a really? Few, yeah, a few years later. Um, 
possibly influenced by like the big blue box and Malcolm Swan is yeah. I went to four folders and I had mostly algebra, mostly geometry, mostly okay. uh, statistics and mostly shape or something like that. Um, but then when I've got things that, you know, say it's, I don't know, finding the perimeter of a shape, but the sides are algebraic, or something, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. which one do you put it in? Um, so it was better in, it, it was better in one because Tom, you're scaring me here. You, you're not talking just one folder, like no folders within the folder. Like how, how many, how many resources have we took? Like thousands of resources in one folder. Yeah. Right. Because now Tom. it's so easy to just like, I've got my computer here. I will open a folder. Um, if you give stuff a really good title, um, so I've got open my reading. So this is this is all the papers that I have in one fo- in one folder. So this is every academic paper oh I've read. God. There are there's over a thousand papers. In there. <laughs> right. I can put my finger. Well, I mean, papers is a slightly different thing. So I always save the paper as the reference. The like the half oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. I, I'll give. I'll give you that. That's okay. But um, I, you're not telling me. Though, like, well, what are you calling? Like, I, I can't even imagine what what you're naming these resources. So you can find it. So let's take that perimeter one that has fractions. Is what's it going to be called? A, a perimeter task where some of the lengths are fractions, some of them are algebraic, some of them are decimals. Is, is that kind of title? Yeah, I'd give it a name like that. Let me let's, <laughs> let's do a real one. <laughs> Because oh, I'm thinking I maybe I should do this. Oh, oh. I'm going to f- try and find the um, that thing if that um, about arcs and sectors. That I was oh yeah, about good, yeah, good, good. Right, so I've gone to mostly geometry. I mean, okay. this surely is not interesting for people. But... <laughs> well, this is good. This is good. <laughs> so what I've so you've got like the search bar. Yep. So I'm going to guess that that is um, has circle arcs and sectors something like that okay so uh i don't know i mean this is edgy you see stuff this time people are wondering yeah, whether so this is good it's just be. called arcs and sectors of a circle and there it is you've got it yeah and i mean another thing that i do that's maybe weird which i could talk about <laughs> at the time is i don't as a teacher i never really used powerpoint i only used excel um, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> so, um, Excel? yeah, I just prefer Excel. Um, what do you mean? What? I can, you're gonna have to just mention something briefly about it. So, so this arcs and sectors lesson is on Excel. Yeah. In, yeah. What's it look like? What, what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you mean. Well, actually, I mean, it is interesting. Like one of our mentors said, because um, like a thing that beginning teachers, which is what we were meant to be talking about, um, <laughs> like waste a lot of time making a PowerPoint. You know, it's that process versus product thing. Right. So the product is the PowerPoint. Right. Um, and one of the one of the teachers were, was like, I don't understand where the lesson is if there's not a PowerPoint. Yeah, I can I can relate a bit to that to be honest yeah. with you. Yeah, I'm with you there. Well, I'm with that teacher. Yeah, but you can just set a task. Go off you go. Oh, I, I agree with that. But where's Excel coming into this? So one of the reasons, one of the things that I like about Excel is you can jump around very easily about where you are in it. Um, 
because you've got little tabs at the bottom in a way that's not straightforward in PowerPoint. But if you're making the, the key thing that's really helpful about um, Excel for me is you can generate types of questions um, using like random. So if I want loads and loads of examples of something, I can easily generate loads and loads of different examples. Whereas in PowerPoint, I'd have to put each one on a new slide. Um, oh, I'm with you there, but surely you can just dip into Excel when when you need it. What what about like writing on writing on and um, are you write are you writing over the top of this the Excel worksheets? I, this has blown my mind. This one, by the way. <laughs> well, I mean, w- one thing is, I would try and be in a situation where I don't have to write on the top of it because um, I in a classroom where I've got actual real whiteboards that you can write on right okay yes yes which i go in loads of schools where they don't have that yeah me too i think that's crazy (laughs) yeah not quite as crazy as planning all your lessons in excel but it is is a bit crazy yeah i mean powerpoint's good for sharing it with other people but most of the time most of the time you're much better writing the question down on the board in fact a better way now is a visualizer yes right um and then write it under the visualizer. You can set it out the way. So this is a thing that's useful for beginners, which maybe try and get back to. Uh, is you kind of like set it out in a way that you want them to think about it to help structure their thinking. You don't have things all over the place. Like maybe if you're solving it, completing the square or something, you have your equal signs lined up and that sort of thing. You plan out, but then you reduce the translation for the students because it's they're seeing it the way that they would do it and in and in a way that might be helpful for them in structuring their sense making and their thinking um i don't need to put all of that onto a powerpoint necessarily but if i put it onto an excel i can just have an infinite number of examples of uh, completing the square that follows that structure um I'll send you one. Yeah. Again, you've you've said some things today that have got me thinking, Tom, but not quite as much as this Excel thing. Um, I, I always do a ta- as you know, I do a takeaway at the end of uh, end of every episode. I'll definitely be thinking about Excel. That that's Excel's coming, that, better than PowerPoint. Discuss. Wow, that is that is madness. That that'll come up again. Right. Okay. Um, anyway, back to back to beginning teachers to to bring this kind of part one um, to a close. Um, was there anything else you wanted to say about things they find difficult? Because what I want to go on to next is is not just how you help them, but what I'm also particularly interested in is obviously lots of um, teachers, um, whether they're officially mentors or whether they're just teachers who have these novice teachers within their lessons, how they can better support them. That's something that particularly interests me. So is there anything else you want to say about difficulties before we move on to support? Planning. The key thing about planning, I think the key thing that they have to learn about planning the lessons is that they plan the lessons so they can reflect on them. Mm. Right. And then they reflect. So we have a quite, quite particular way of, of working on this. Um, so they're reflecting on them kind of in terms of the purposes that they had for things. And we get them to do it in two ways, which we call evaluation and reflection. So I'll say a bit about each. Mm. 
So evaluation is what you do is you spend five minutes after the lesson annotating the lesson plan. Like I didn't do this. This took longer than I expected. They were confused about negatives. I didn't expect this thing about drawing the axes to come up. All of that kind of stuff. And that five minutes is where you work out mathematically, like what do the kids need to be working on in the next lesson? Right? Yes. So in terms of your, because you've already thought about this in your medium term plan or your topic overview and splurge, you go, right, I need to do more. Of, I need to have a lesson on this. I need to do this uh, or I can go on to my next bit. Right. So you spend a bit of time doing that. And that's like evaluation. And then the next thing is reflection. And I think you've worked out what the kids need to be working on. But reflection is about working out what you need to be working on, what the teacher needs to be working on. And we have, well, we've evolved and adopted a particular way of working on this, mainly influenced by uh, Alf Coles. Do you know Alf Coles? No. I should definitely get him on the podcast. Brilliant. He's our external examiner. Um, knows loads of stuff about teaching, about Catenio. be really interesting to talk to him. Okay, okay. Um, and, yeah, he... He has this kind of way of thinking about it that is developed with Lorinda Brown, I think. Uh, again, amazing. About experiences, issues, and actions. So, what, there's so many things that you could reflect on in a lesson. I mean, you'll yes. have this at the end of this. You just mentioned like doing your reflection at the end. <laughs> yeah. but there's loads of things you'll reflect on. How do you choose which is the thing? And I think really just pick the thing, the first thing that comes to mind, because at the at that moment, that's the most important thing for you. So yes. but then the, the discipline is um, to account f before you start accounting for why things happen, a little account of what happens. So you describe an experience. So this could be a very simple thing. So um a, a lesson I watched the other day, the um, the teachers experience that they that they noticed in the moment was that they they found themselves saying, I keep seeing the same hands. Right? Right, okay. And kind of that experience, teachers might be able to recognize that kind of moment. And then what you do with issues is draw out what the issues are from that moment. Okay. Um, so that ended up being, I think, for her about she was asking questions in a way that made some people put their hands up and other people's not. Right. Um, so and she wanted it to be that everyone was involved or everyone. So the issue and you could have drawn out different issues from that moment. But she ended up with some concrete actions about that. What she was going to do is either ask particular people or use like a whole class response, like mm. different colored cards or ABCD yes. or mini whiteboards. So they're deliberate actions that she's going to do in the next lesson and then potentially reflect on. Right, does that make sense? It does. It does. It, it's concrete and it's focused. That's what I like about that. Absolutely. And then I guess in a way that relates to your follow-up question, which is how do you get mm. other teachers? Yes. Um, like the mentors or or the kind of accidental teacher educator. <laughs> yes, um, yeah, yeah, that's nice. I like that. How do you get them to work? How do they work with students? Well, it's it's tempting to go, 
Uh, like my Ofsted inspector, he was thinking, I wouldn't have done it like this. So yes, that, yes. Right. And it's tempting to go with what you would do. Yeah. And and say, oh, I noticed that you didn't do X, Y and Z. So I would do this, this and this. But you probably wouldn't do that for students. I mean, you mentioned right at the start that you would like assess them, find out where they are and go there. Mm. Right. So like start with. the. So I think the key thing for me is go to them, reserve judgment, don't impose on them. If they ask you for specific help, then you can give it to them. But I try and do that experiences, issues, actions thing. We try and encourage mentors to go. Uh, can you describe a moment in the lesson that really stood out with for you or or something that really stayed with you? or a significant event or something that you were particularly pleased about or or something that went differently to how you expected and then draw out the issues from what they say there and some concrete actions to go forward and if you're there with them like that might be they go oh i didn't think my explanation was very good and i noticed because i set the task and five hands went up so that's a moment that you might recognize blah blah um so the issue might be do a better explanation, but you're there and then work out a better explanation for that thing mm. and the things that you're about to teach in the next lesson. Yes. Right? So you've got you've got a concrete improvement immediately for that thing and for the and for the next lesson or like the next thing that you're teaching or the next topic. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I like that. And and do you find is this when you say you um, advise kind of mentors and supporting teachers to do this? That this I guess requires quite a close working relationship between the the, the university um, and the and the schools that the the people are placed in. And it's because it's one thing. I mean, I think it sounds a super sensible idea. But do you, do you have any way of knowing whether that kind of message is is getting across? And, and this is the approach that the, the mentors and the accidental mentors are taking. Yeah, so brilliant. A brilliant question. Um, this almost could have been a potential favourite failure thing for me. So <laughs> when I very first started, um, I asked uh, one of the other tutors, a guy called John Kirkman, who's a physics tutor, um, to come with me on a on a observation day, um, and we watched a lesson together, me, him, and the mentor, and then I did like the sort of debrief for the student discussion afterwards and we came out of it and I thought I'd done a pretty good job and we had a little chat about it and one of the things he said was you gave some really expert feedback that will be really helpful for that teacher today um what's the feedback they're getting the rest of the time like right yes and I right so I had no idea and it had you know a serious implication for me because I thought that my job was like I'm a I'm a teacher of maths and now I'm going to go to be a teacher of teaching maths and yes. the, the students are like my class but it's just not like that the reality is it's more like being a head of department and the mentors are like your team oh, uh, the people good. that you've yes. got like an ongoing relationship with so the visits in some ways are as much about helping them so I guess one thing that I might try and do is, wherever possible, ask them what would be helpful for them. 
yes from me visiting so and sometimes like a helpful thing is that if i have two students in the same school that we watch the lesson together and we talk about it in there and then i initiate the first conversation and then they they sort of watch and chip in and then we watch the second lesson and they initiate it so like that's that kind of modeling again where i've gone oh this is the way that i'm doing it i hope and it's like seeing if that's helpful for them and you know sometimes that's very helpful for them um because they've got this even harder task that they're also they then are going to try and do that with their other teachers in the department that are working with the students but i think it's really valuable for them because that kind of level of reflecting on your practice just makes them get better as teachers as well Yes. Which ultimately gives, you know, my students a better experience, but the kids that they're teaching a better experience, which feeds into my students having a better experience. And, and like, that's kind of why I wanted to get into kind of teacher education and leave teaching maths, which I really love, is to try and have this kind of like wider influence. So I think it's really good having trainee teachers because it lets you, it helps you to reflect on your own practice. But it's also like a really good way to to get more people into the profession. Like if you need someone in your department, which almost all departments do, it's better to have someone that you've worked with in the same way that the loop in class thing works. Right. Yes. Um, so, yeah, sort of roundabout. And no, that's a, it's, a, it's, it's a very it's a very comprehensive um, answer there, Tom. And my final thing, um, just on beginning teachers, and again, feel free if there's anything that we've missed that, that you want to add, is that I just wonder, just on a practical level, if if um, if a teacher's listening who regularly watches other teachers, so maybe they're a head of department, maybe they're a mentor, maybe they've uh, got a responsibility point, or maybe it's kind of a bit of an open door policy where you come in and, and watch other people's lessons. Um, I think I'm pretty bad at observing lessons because I do exactly what you say, you know, as I'm watching it all the time going through my head is, well, I wouldn't have done that. I would have done this. I wouldn't have done that. I would have done this and so on and so forth. What is a better kind of mentality, if that's the right word or a kind of a better kind of inner dialogue i guess or a better focus that, that somebody watching a lesson should should have so that when they then come to have this reflective conversation with the teacher afterwards they can really get the most out of it well what's your mindset when you're going into into watching lessons um i just firstly i'm trying to withhold judgment as much as possible and i think i've got enough biases to know that uh, like it's not really possible i i never grade lessons yes. we never ever yeah. grade lessons right that's not a part of it, i think so um you know no one should be doing that it's never useful but I, I i don't think i'd know whether it was good or bad i don't think it's a helpful thing to think about so free yourself from that and just go oh i don't have to worry about that i can't do it anyway i don't have to worry about it i'm just gonna see what i see um so essentially what I try and do is our lesson observation form is a blank piece of paper. Um, and what I do is I keep a record of what is happening at particular times and I try and do it in as non-judgmental way as possible. So generally that is with actual quotations of dialogue. So if the teacher says this, I write that down. If a student yes. says that, I write that down. If, um, 
they write something on the board. I try and write it down the way they write it down with things mm. in the same place. Um, occasionally, I think it can be useful to note down questions that you have. So sometimes, I, I, I mean, I'm often writing, what's your purpose here? Because yes. that's the thing. I can't evaluate it unless I know what the purpose is. And it's not that helpful for me to evaluate it anyway. Like I want them to evaluate it. Um, but I note down things they say. Um, I think it is useful to summarize at the end what you think are the key strengths and things to work for work on in the next lesson. But the things to work on should be short. Right. right Maybe okay. one thing. Right. What do you think is the key thing for them to work on? Um, and it's kind of counterintuitive, but the often the best way to get better is building on strengths rather than um, like shoring up weaknesses because you That's might have to use, you might not have to use your things that you're weaker. You might just prefer to do a different thing and come back to that later if at all. Um, but then when you talk about it, I'd withhold those strengths and weaknesses for us for a short amount of time. I mean, if you, if work out how long you've got if you've got five minutes to talk about it ask them first and then if they want to know what you think about it then tell them then but if they the, the key thing is to go is you're trying to develop what they think about it um so i do that try and do that first like find out what they're thinking about first and like you know classic example is you think there's loads of problems with how they've done their examples or something but all they're thinking about is the behavior you need to th talk about those things because that's where the energy is that's where the emotion yes. is right and that's the thing you can harness um that's fascinating. Uh, absolutely fascinating, that Tom. And was there anything else you wanted to say? Um, I th I've, we've covered regard all I all I wanted to talk about and more with new teachers. But is there anything else you want to say before we move on to your big three? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess that's it. They just uh, ob observing other people is so difficult because we can't observe ourselves impartially. Let alone <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, and it's worth bearing in mind the things. The things that you know about teaching the math is the same as teaching is the same things as teaching the teaching. You know, like feedback is often powerful. It doesn't mean it's good. Right. Mm. Sometimes more feedback isn't more helpful um, to and too much feedback, even if it's really good for your like teachers that you're supporting, like builds over reliance on that feedback. Like in the same way that it does for students, like you have to gradually withdraw it and they need maybe more feedback at the start and you and less at the end. So you're scaffolding more and then fading uh, later. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's loads we could say, but no, probably plenty. Plenty to pick through there. That's absolutely fascinating. Well, um, so we're obviously not going to do your reflections because we've got probably another two episodes to go before before we get to that. But what we are going to do is uh, do your big three to, to round off this episode, Tom. So um, there'll be Actually, can I just check oh. in a couple? Sorry. Oh, yeah, of I mean, course, of course. I, yeah, I yeah, sort of course. touched on this, but um, the other thing is about like correction rather than critique. So okay, yes, don't just go, on. oh, you should do a better explanation. Right. 
it's like telling a comedian to be funnier you know <laughs> it, it's better to like work on that together shorten the feedback loop and you know actually plan a better explanation work together on giving a clear explanation you know if you go oh it would have been better if you'd done that divided fractions thing visually like work up what that's going to look like so they can yeah. so it's ready for their next lesson and then practice practice together them using it um yeah go on i'll go, I'll go to your actual question sorry <laughs> flipping it up right okay let's do let's do big three then let's let's go for this so um as usual three websites blog posts or whatever you want and we'll link to these uh, in the show notes now these are all going to be related to things we've talked about today which and then tom may well pick out some other things uh, related to some of the things that we'll get around to and uh, the next time tom's on the show so what are you going for for today tom okay so my first one so these my first one's a book, um, Adapted and Extending Secondary Maths Activities, New Tasks for Old. That is essentially um, the, the key way that I think about designing tasks and um, adapting and extending is kind of what, what I'm aiming to do as a teacher. So that's by Pat Perks and Steph Prestige. Um, they, they were your tutors, is that They right? were, yeah, so it was... So like when this book was coming out, they were sort of working up all these ideas and stuff wow. with us. So that was really fun. It was and my Bible in the PGCE, but it still influences how I think about absolutely everything. And we talked about the notion of ad adapting and extending early on in the conversation. So, yeah, that, that looks absolutely fascinating. Though. Yeah. And I'll send you. So everyone should buy that because that's great. But I'll send <laughs> I'm going to send you a link um, to Anne and John's website where they're host they're hosting like a little book of it adapting extending that pat oh, wow. did about isosceles triangle so just in that realm and actually maybe talk about some of those tasks a bit more later fantastic nice one okay what are you going for for number two uh number two is if this is allowed this is dave hewitt's phd thesis okay interesting so i've hardly talked about any of this but this is uh, one of the biggest influences on my teaching um like dave's like my maths guru um but if i've ever got a specific skill or concept i wanted to work on i always do try and do so economically so it's called the principles of economy in the teaching and learning of mathematics um yeah it's just really i'm particularly interested in practice through progress to drive functioning subordination so we might talk about it if we talk about practice later yes um Arbitrary and necessary is this thing, a way of viewing the maths curriculum, but it all comes in here. And I can just read this thing like uh, it's very different to most PhD thesis that I've seen. Um, it's, a, it's just like a really compelling sort of story of how his ideas develop. Um, he did write a paper, if you don't want to read the whole thesis, in 2015. Um which is the economic use of time and effort in the teaching and learning of maths, which is um, a kind of much abbreviated version. But I always had these principles of economy stuck on the front of my planner. I've now got them stuck on my door, in fact, <laughs> wow. my office door. Um, and actually, if people want to know about that, I mentioned the Lumen thing earlier. Mm. The, you did the first session. Dave is doing the second the the next session which is in march um so if people are 
interested in some free CPD and wanting to learn more about that, then that would be a really good thing for people to go to, I guess. Fantastic. And yeah, and I'll put it once the details for that come out, so there'll be a link to that in the show notes. And if you follow Colin Foster on Twitter, he will, uh, he'll be definitely sharing details about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, yeah, what, what about number three, Tom? So I just, so this isn't what I was going to say, but I'll just chuck out a few things. Like we mentioned um, some places that I think are really useful for new teachers to look at in that kind mm. of minimal subset. So a few things that are useful. We mentioned Don Stewart's website. Love Don. Um, MathSpot. I guess you know MathSpot. Yeah, Jonathan Halls. Yeah. But like planning's hard. So I really want them to focus on the main bit where they talk to the whole class and think about what the main activity is. Um, and I mentioned that we agree with the mentors that they'll do these kind of settling starters. Mm. Uh, sometimes they have these school policies where they have to do a do now and maybe yes. it has to be red, amber and green and whatever. But MathSpot is really, really good, I think, for generating those kinds of things. Plus, there's all the lovely visual manipulative stuff that's really yes. great. So share it to that. It's interesting, just just on that, and again, I, 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 this hopefully this won't take us down another path. But um, again, you'll have listened to the uh, second time the episode, uh, the second time Mark McCourt was on, and we had a bit of a, a chat about starters. It's interesting that you describe it as this settling starter. So it's it's not the kind of content. Uh, sorry, the, the content is not kind of pertinent to the to the rest of the lesson. This is no kind of prerequisite knowledge being dealt with in these starters. These are just time for the teacher to get prepared the kids to get settled down ready for the lesson to begin is, is that right Tom? so i don't think that's the only purpose of a starter like you might have them to provoke the need for some maths that you're teaching you might have an interesting puzzle that's going to oh, yes. like provoke the enjoyment but we i guess i we agree that with the mentors for when they first start their first placement that that's what the goal is and then they can move away from that when they're ready but I want them to be critical about that and go, oh, I don't always need to do that or it's not right in these situations or these classes or or and that kind of like building up their criticality. But I mean, we didn't really talk about this, but the. Um, like we I guess I try and teach them quite explicit things about behavior, which we practice as well, um, which I think is maybe different to some. Um, courses where you're learning to teach not because I think that but because I think it's a good place to start from um, I can't remember the source for this but there is some evidence that you know the teachers that leave earlier are much mm. more likely to have problems with behavior yes and that if you don't get them sorted in the first eight weeks it makes people much more likely to leave teaching oh that's interesting and we can't yes. afford that no right? no so I want you to be critical of my kind of the methods that are employed and like view it with a critical eye and and possibly potentially keep going with it and potentially move away from it. But we do get them to practice how they're going to come like that example, what the starter is going to be like. And then they practice their kind of entrance routine of how they get into the classroom, what they're going to say, um, how they're going to set up getting from outside the room to inside the room, whatever that is, how that's going to fit in with their school needs, just so that when they're doing it with kids, it's like not the first time they're doing it. They've already had success at that thing. Yes. 
sense. That makes sense. Oof, it, it certainly does. Flipping out, Tom. Well, <laughs> as I say, it was interesting when we were going kind of back and forth, planning the structure of this. Um, I thought it'd be an epic conversation, but it's it's surpassed my uh, expectations there. As I say, there's at least another episode, if not two more episodes uh, to go on this. But I, I'll tell you what, Tom, it's been a long time in, in, in the making, that, that this episode, but it's been worth the wait. I, yeah, I, thought, it's been, I thought it's been absolutely fascinating, this. Um, I have, I've got no notes uh, but i'm going to i'm going to try and take your uh, your advice there i'm just going to reflect on a couple of things that, that that come to mind straight away in my takeaway because there's a danger this takeaway could be as long as our as our actual conversation which should uh, which would be problematic for listeners but thank you <laughs> thank you so much for, for for giving up your time tom i always learn something when i when i talk to you just when we meet briefly at conferences but i've i've learned so much so much more today it's been it's been absolutely fascinating so tom thank you this is not goodbye this is just uh I don't know what they say, like, see you in a bit, I guess, because you, you will, you'll definitely be back. Um, so thank you for giving up your time and best of luck to, to you and your family for the uh, uh, pending arrival of, of your next child. So thanks. Tom Franken, thank you so much for today. Well, thank you. And thanks for the podcast. And we also have your book that we get the students to read on our reading list. So thanks for that. That's what I like to hear. Fantastic. <laughs> Cheers. Take care. So there you have it. There was my interview with Tom Frankham. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as, as I did. Um, I know I say this all the time, but I absolutely loved that conversation. Um, as I said in my introduction, I sent Tom through a load of bullet points for all the questions I wanted to ask him. And it became pretty clear pretty early on, um, probably during the speed dating questions, that there was absolutely zero chance we were going to get through any of it. And it's, it's really interesting. When, when I do these interviews, I'm always conscious and respectful of guest time. They're, they're always giving up either evenings or weekends tends to speak to me. And I'm always always in a bit of a dilemma thinking, well, I've loads of questions I know I want to ask because I know I want to know the answer and listeners want to. But also I want to give the time, guests time to pursue avenues that interest them and interest me that come up that we, we can't prepare for and so on and so forth. So I was a bit kind of on edge at the start of the conversation, just what, kind of one eye on the clock thinking, God almighty, this there's no chance we're going to get anywhere near it. But that once I managed to lock Tom in to return into the show, um, I could relax a bit thinking it doesn't matter how far we get through this because Tom's coming back and it's it's better to go deep than to um, to, to kind of try and cover as much as possible in, in uh, little time and give it scant coverage. Um, and I'm dead happy because Tom's coming back to speak about mixed entertainment. It's one of the most requested things to, to speak about following Helen Hindle's uh, appearance on the show a couple of years back. I know lots of teachers, myself included, uh, feel a little bit out of their depth with uh, teaching mixed entertainment classes. So I, I can't wait to get Tom's insights into that. And then we get the whole notion of practicing mathematics. Uh, the book with that very title, uh, the ATM publication, is one of my favorites of all time that was written by Tom and Dave Hewitt and I know just from conversations with Tom his thoughts on this are fascinating and it ties into his, his beliefs and uh, insights into mixed attainment and it links into differentiation which is something I'm going to talk about um, in, a, in a minute or so so yeah I absolutely adored that conversation it was a bit of a rambling one but uh, it, yeah it, it was great I thought anyway um, now in these takeaways I'm, I'm going to try and take a bit of advice both from Tom and also Emma McRae you may have heard that, that interview um, last but one podcast because both of those interviews talked to, um, 
In those interviews, both of my guests, Emma and Tom, uh, mentioned that when they give feedback to teachers, uh, whether they're novice teachers or experienced teachers, but particularly novice teachers, following lesson observations, one thing they try to do is not overwhelm them, not give them too much. And I've been guilty of that in the past. Um, maybe you should try this, try this, try this, then there's this, this and this, and it's just too much and you end up doing nothing. Um, so I, I think I've been guilty of that in the takeaways from my podcast. There've been some conversations where, where the takeaway has been longer than the conversation itself. And the conversation has been a couple of hours just because I've got so much kind of so many ideas as a result of speaking to people so much to reflect on but I found myself when I look back at some of those old takeaways and I've not changed as much as I want to I've not learned as much as I want to and I think that's because I'm setting myself too big a challenge there's too much to take away so starting from now I'm going to try and be a bit more concise in these takeaways I mean we'll see how this pans out but we've got to give it a go um just so that I can try and um yeah try and make sure that well, less is more. Let's give myself less, less to do, less to focus on. So hopefully some of these things will, will lead to actual change. So I'm going to pick out, uh, well, three or may, maybe kind of three and a half. So the first is uh, Tom's favorite failure. Um, I thought I thought those stories were lovely. Um, but the key thing I wanted to reflect on is the fact that the kind of twist at the end of Tom's tale, it was like one of those M. Night Shyamalan's, I can never say his name, um, movies like Sixth Sense, where the twist at the end was, this lesson was going terrible, but then when Tom saw the kids again at the end, uh, following lesson, they'd learned, they'd remembered, they'd retained it. And it goes back to this notion that learning's invisible. You can't observe it in the moment. You can only observe it over time. And whilst those kids were struggling and potentially not enjoying themselves, and Tom thought it was a disastrous lesson, they had learned something. And the flip side of that, of course, is, I mean, I'm sure listeners can relate to this. I've had some lessons where I thought, wow, this is a great lesson. I'm, I'm on fire here as a teacher. I'm nailing this. The kids are loving it. They seem to be getting it. And then next lesson, next week or whenever it is, it's as if they were never there. It's, it's like some alien abductions taking place. Learning's a complex old thing. And this goes back to Bjork's desirable difficulties, that, that sometimes this, this struggle, this this effort, this effort that the kids are putting in where it looks like they're not making progress, it looks like they're not getting anywhere. Actually, that struggle, that effort is sowing the seeds for long-term learning, for retention. And this difference between learning and performance, just because kids are doing well at the time, doesn't necessarily mean they're learning. And, and also more than that, creating the conditions that make it easy for kids to perform actually may mean that that long-term learning is a bit less. So that's that's something I just wanted to reflect on. And also, I think a positive message from that is I'm not going to beat myself up too much if a lesson doesn't go according to plan and kids are struggling, because actually that struggle may just be needed for it to be sinking in. And, and perhaps even more importantly, I'm going to tell the kids that if you're struggling now and you're not getting it now, don't worry about it. This is a necessary step on the way to getting it. So I thought that was interesting. And also, what about what about that heart-wrenching tale of uh, that girl? You were the only one who believed in me. God almighty, that, that, that hit me hard, that. But yeah, wow. Um, yeah, the, the perils of differentiation. Which brings us on to differentiation. Um, I said in the introduction that Tom's a deep thinker and he, and he asks these kind of pertinent, challenging questions. I mean, I've, I've never been asked this before. Should we differentiate? And it, what, what, what a great question, because again, I just assume, yeah, of course, of course, like we should differentiate, we should attempt to differentiate, but, but, but should we? And it really got me thinking this about differentiation. Um, I reached the conclusion a couple of years back 
the the type of differentiation I used to do, the kind of visible form of differentiation, giving kids different work to do, um, different worksheets, different sets of questions, and so on and so forth. That's incredibly problematic um, for for the reasons Tom Tom <laughs> indicated with that heart wrenching story. If if you get it wrong, it puts ceilings on kids' ambitions and so on and so forth. If you get it wrong the other way as well, you give too challenging work to students before the foundations are in place. That can be really really problematic. So the consequences of getting that kind of visible differentiation wrong, I think, are, are striking enough um, to, to make it, yeah, I'm, I'm less likely to attempt that kind of thing um, these days. It's very hard to collect enough evidence in any reasonable time frame to be able to judge the kind of work that 30 kids in your class should each be doing and so on. Um, and again, as a bit of a teaser for, for when Tom returns to the show, um, I, I think I don't want to put words in Tom's mouth, but the tasks that we and the activities that we give our kids, I think, are, are the keys to differentiation. Certainly my, my opinion and, and from reading some of Tom's work as well, because if you get the task right, you don't get these problems that you have to keep swapping work and kids are doing different things and so on and so forth. The task can lend itself to, to different levels of challenge and you don't have to predict in advance which kids may be operating or accessing it at different levels and so on and so forth. Um, Tom shared with me some tasks um, for this this first conversation. Obviously, we got nowhere near to them in terms of the questions, and they look absolutely fascinating. And already, kind of the wheels are spinning in my head thinking, yeah, actually, I can see in a mixed attainment uh, class or a setted class how this what single task could certainly be appropriate for a whole range of students. And again, it goes back, it's an obvious point, but an important point. The key to that, of course, is if some kids are struggling and some kids are thriving with that task, I don't have to predict in advance who's the, who those kids are going to be. So I don't have to make these dodgy differentiation decisions that can lead to either capping kids' aspirations or pushing them onto a challenge that they're not quite ready for yet. So bit of a teaser, that's coming next, but I've certainly been thinking hard about differentiation. It's an absolute minefield. And then the final thing I wanted to take away, uh, big takeaway, is this, this notion of observing a lesson. Um, it's come up a lot on the podcast over the years. I mean, way back when Danny Quinn came on uh, to the show, I think it was the, her first uh, appearance on the show, uh, the controversial one, as I like to call it. Uh, she talked about observing lessons there, about going in, having a focus to the lesson. So not going in just kind of being a bit general and so on and so forth. But the teacher you're observing saying to Danny in advance, I'd like you to watch out for me doing this. And it may be something as specific as how I hand the books out or how how I settle the kids down or um, what my assessment for learning strategy is like. So something tight and focused. That was Danny's advice. And I really like that. And then in the last podcast, but one, um, we spoke, uh, spoke to Emma McRae about how she goes into observing novice teachers um, and, and the techniques that she uses and, and the observation forms that she uses and what she looks out for. And that's towards the end of the um, interview and it's absolutely fascinating. And then I loved what Tom was saying. And the big thing for me is um, not being judgmental. So going in there, not with all my kind of preconceptions of, oh, I would have done this, I would have done this, and so on and so forth. And I've been guilty of this so many times, particularly um, when I was made AST, probably a bit too young um, on, on reflection. My advice after watching teachers teach, teachers who were more experienced than me, this is the worrying thing, is my advice would always be framed around, well, perhaps you could have done this, perhaps you could have done this. And what I meant by that is... That's what I would have done. That's what I would have done. But it's different. It's, it's, teachers have different views, teachers at different stages, different priorities, and so on and so forth. 
And what I've taken away from uh, speaking to Tom there is the key is trying to develop what the person you're observing, what they thought about the lesson, and crucially build on strengths, not on weaknesses. So if you find something good, something that they did really well, that's the thing to focus in on and let's get that better. And it kind of pulls everything else up. It becomes a much more positive conversation and positive experience. Of course, if there's an obvious weakness and, and even more so if they pick up on it themselves, then of course that can be centered around that, the conversation. But finding something they do really, really well and building on that that seems to me to be the way forward. And of course, as I said at the top of this takeaway, not to overload people we watch with too much, too many things, too much advice, too many things to think about. One or two things that they actually do think about beats 50 things that they don't think about. And finally, the last thing I want to say is planning lessons on Excel. I have never heard anything like that in my life. I thought he was winding me up. I have never heard anything like that in my life. And I love the way you just casually just drop that into the conversation. Oh, and by the way, I do all my lessons on Excel. Absolutely unbelievable. I might have to revisit that when Tom comes back on the show. Anyway, um, that'll do for now. And all that remains for me to do is to uh, once again thank Tom for giving up his time and being on the show. I can't wait for him to, to come back on. Um, I want to thank podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. Um, and a massive thank you to you, my lovely loyal listeners, for keeping in and tuning um, into these um, in 2020, I'm going to be cutting down the frequency of these podcasts a little bit. And many of you know, we've got a little baby at home, Isaac, and I've been doing a, too much traveling in 2019. And when I've been home, I've been recording podcasts and editing them and so on and so forth. And I need to give a bit more time to my family. So my aim is to do at least once a month. And then anytime um, something else comes up, like the topics in depth videos with Joe Morgan, or if I'm at a conference, I'll squeeze in little bonus ones there. But again, I'd rather, yeah, I want to give some proper, I want to be a proper dad and a proper husband and also um yeah when i do these podcasts they're, they're big old meaty ones so i think once a month hopefully uh, hopefully should be enough to satisfy the listeners and uh, as i say as a final plug uh, just remember my book reflect expect check explain um, is available to pre-order now i'm dead proud of it but i'm also incredibly nervous about how it's going to be received um so if you do fancy pre-ordering a copy there is a link to that in the show notes anyway thank you so much for tuning in i hope you're all well um, and i will speak to you soon take care bye for now 